0: This show is sponsored by the Bitbox O2 by Shift Crypto. If you're new to Bitcoin, you need to be taking self-custody. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Must be done. Hardware wallets are a great way to do that. And in my opinion, the Bitbox O2 Bitcoin-only edition is a fantastic tool for you to take, to help you take self-custody. It makes it very easy to do so. It's easy to set up, easy to operate, and a great first step. Of course, for the more experienced among you, it's also rich with features Uh, that allow you to uh, enhance your setup. So you can use it with different multi-sig arrangements. It's fully open source. There's reproducible builds. There's a bug bounty program in place, encrypted USB channel communication, and lots of other features. I highly recommend you visit the website uh, and check them out because they really are pretty impressive. Mm -hmm. So if you want to do that, go to shiftcrypto.ch forward slash rapidfire and you can get yourself 5% off. But before you take custody of your Bitcoin, you obviously have to buy it. And if you're in Canada, I highly recommend bullbitcoin.com, a phenomenal non-custodial exchange, which means they don't custody ever your Bitcoin. You buy them through them, you provide them with a receive address, which goes right to your own self-custody. That's the best way to do it so that you're never leaving coins on exchange, as we often say, not your keys, not your coins. You don't want to be left in the lurch should something happen to the exchange internally, externally, or whatever. And very soon also, they'll be offering self-custody support to international clients, which means no matter where you are, you'll be able to avail of their services to help you get set up properly so that you're buying Bitcoin and custodying it in the best way possible. So look out for that. And finally, the Bitcoin 2022 conference. The 2021 conference was insane. I talk about it all the time on the podcast. I had such an amazing experience. And this year, it's going to be on Miami Beach instead of in Wynwood, 35,000 capacity. I can't even imagine what uh, the organizers have in store. I'm sure there's a bunch of surprises. Uh, But the best part about it all is not so much the speakers or the peripheral events; it's meeting other Bitcoiners. If you haven't been to a Bitcoin conference, you just are going to have to take my word for it. It's incredible. So if you'd like to go, it's from April 6th to the 9th. And if you want 10% off your ticket, use the code RAPIDFIRE at checkout. Let's do it. There we go. We're live. Adam, how you doing? Pretty good. Um, like I was just telling you, I've... Uh, anticipating this chat for a while and i'm really happy it came together Uh, so first of all i I really appreciate you making the time and second of all uh for the very few people i suspect that maybe aren't familiar with you uh how about a a brief self-introduction
1: um yeah so i kind of um i mean i'm a programmer i do a lot of work on applied crypto that was my background so Reviewing, breaking other people's protocols, implementing, designing protocols, and so I was interested in electronic cash and privacy, and that's how I came to invent Hashcash, you know, many years ago. And um, you know, professionally, I've worked at, been a kind of consultant on security protocols to startups and bigger companies historically, and uh, worked, you know co-founded startups, and then worked at bigger companies after those have been acquired, that kind of thing. And um, so, yeah, kind of uh, enjoyed the the startup pace and wide range of things that you can do in a startup. And, you know, my background before that was uh, in, in a university, like educational background was in computer science, a computer science degree, then a computer science PhD with uh, distributed systems flavor. So, it meant, for example, that I knew who Leslie Lamport was and what the Byzantine General's problem was before Bitcoin, where most people would have come out the other way around and heard about that, like computer science problem statement and that uh, kind of story to motivate that in a, in a sort of description of what it, what it means in practice from the Bitcoin side first.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Were you... So your, edu- your formal educational background, distributed systems, was economics in there as well? Did you do a minor uh, yeah. or something in economics?
1: I did a, well, in it, uh, I studied in the UK and they have a slightly different system to what people are used to in mainland Europe and in the US and Canada. But in the UK, you do, you know, your general education to 16 and then you do uh, four elective subjects, three or four subjects, to do it between sixteen and eighteen, and then you start university if you go to university at eighteen. And I think in the US, for example, you can continue to do a wider range of things in the first year of university. Or some of the dates don't line up. So in any case, I did I did economics in the sixteen to eighteen bracket, which is called A, a, uh, a levels. Mm-hmm. And yeah, now that was because I was interested in kind of free market outlook. that the the free market and and the competition was a way to get um positive things done in society as as opposed to too much kind of big government and bureaucracy and that kind of thing Mm
0: -hmm. and the the interest in cryptography when did that start for you like how old were you when you first started learning and messing around with cryptography
1: Hmm. so i kind of um did some things like i taught myself to program um well, probably about 13 or something. And uh, so did some basic programming and then some Z80 machine code and assembler. And then at the 16 to 18, the um, A-level college had some eighty eighty six based computers. And uh, I, I got interested in writing some kind of uh, encryption thing. I mean, of course, it wasn't very good because people know, invent their own encryption protocols and they don't know anything about the background of it, it, it won't be secure. But, you know, the concept seemed interesting to me that you could make uh, basically a program that would be encrypted. And when you run the first part of it, you put a password in, it would decrypt the rest of the program and then execute. So you could leave a piece of software on a shared system and not have people be able to look at it and see what it what it would do when it was run. So it's kind of, in principle, kind of nefarious piece of uh, software design, but I was kind of interested in, you know, I I think some people have a kind of natural inclination to uh, think adversarially, you know, like maybe they'd be good at playing adversarial puzzles or chess or things like that. So it just occurs to them that, you know, if I could do this, it would be more difficult to attack. So you're kind of playing chess with yourself and designing it. So this, you know, and the, the distinction between Malicious use and positive use is is abstract, right? That depends what people use it for. Ultimately, it's a tool. So that was what, that's the first thing I did. And then at university, um, a friend of mine who's doing a master's degree, so this is, you know, three or four years later, when I'd started my PhD was uh, implementing the RSA uh, encryption algorithm on a distributed computing cluster. And so computers were slower then, and so the RSA encryption operation was relatively slow. And there are some algorithms to break it up into sub computations and spread them out across multiple CPUs and bring it back together and try and get it, to, get it to encrypt, you know, with much lower latency. So I was just sitting around, you know, talking with him about, well, what is this problem you're working on? What, what's this RSA encryption thing? Why is that interesting? And then, so I was aware of that. And then a little while after that, PGP came out and that was really you know, it created a lot of discussion online and and in, you know, physical publications that the ability for the individual to, um, you know, encrypt something to a friend who lived in another country, like an email, and, you know, a government agency wouldn't be able to decrypt it. That's kind of a change in the balance of power. So I found that fascinating and very interesting. So that kind of led me down, you know, the rabbit hole of uh, trying to find more details about things like that, other, other kind of crypto applications. And so I ended up finding the Cypherpunks list not long after it had started so as kind of, I guess, 92, 93, something like this. Um, and there and the people were interested in, you know, using it for privacy, using encryption for privacy, for encrypting disks, to build electronic cash protocols. So I basically spent a good part of the PhD when I was supposed to be doing distributed systems, applied research, actually reading academic, applied crypto papers and trying to find interesting building blocks to build specific things that would uh, make different electronic cash and privacy technology practical.
0: Was there something in your upbringing or an experience or a certain exposure to ideology when you were a kid that you can identify that you think led to an interest in encryption because it's like it's fundamentally a something you know a a tool that preserves the sovereignty of the individual effectively you know it's a defensive tool although it can be used as you said in both ways but you know it's it's I wouldn't say odd, but it's certainly not super common for someone to be so drawn and so fascinated with what encryption represents do you have you looked back on on your life and identify kind of connected the dots why it became such a focal point of your interest?
1: Um, well, I think my parents were like interested to sort of apply independent thoughts or things, you know not, not be swayed by mass media but to like look at a discussion topic or an issue and form their own opinions about it. So kind of independent streak. And also my mother is from Zurich, Switzerland, and it has more of a kind of culture of, you know, privacy, even financial privacy to this day. So I think that probably the combination would make me more inclined to just question authority out of the gate. You know, if somebody would say, well, this is how it's done or this is how, f- how you have to do it, I would immediately caused me to ask the question well why is that (laughs) is that the right answer Uh, maybe I don't want to do that
0: yeah did you have when you encountered that like what what cryptography could represent and you became fascinated with it did you have specific ambitions for its application you know or were you just kind of swimming in the the soup of learning and and interacting with other people who are doing the same
1: no it was very mission oriented so you know looking at the specific uh, functionality that would be desirable to build using cryptographic building blocks and then trying to find novel ways to combine existing building blocks or find new building blocks that would enable them and so you know people would be interested in and some of those things were challenging to do. Like, Obviously, electronic cash was very difficult to make decentralized, which is, I think, ultimately why it took so many years between, you know, the first uh, very anonymous electronic cash system, probably dating back to like mid 80s, David Chom's Blind Signatures paper until, you know, Satoshi Nakamoto's Bitcoin paper in 2008. That's a long period of elapsed time. But I think that, you know, people will have to see things fail um centralized things fail to realize that decentralization is important um, so yeah I was I was actually you know quite focused in what I was reading I was reading things that might have practical application to solve some of these problems and another one is a kind of the ability to store information so that it couldn't be deleted couldn't be censored so and there's a a paper by a Cambridge professor called uh, uh, The Eternity Paper by, uh, I mean, it's was it Eternity is like a publisher, anonymous publishing system, which is supposed to be decentralized and therefore hard to censor with some encryption so that it would be hard to locate all copies. And those, those are quite open-ended, hard problems to solve. So I implemented a kind of simplified version of that. And there are related, maybe slightly simpler problems of Having a decentralized and anonymous way to um, receive email, so you know you could, you could send email anonymously using the Remailer's, but being able to receive email back again with a pseudonym, and have that not be um, traceable back to you after the fact, because because the Remailer's generally work by it's like kind of like Tor. You would take an email, you'd encrypt it multiple times. And it'd go through different hops and each hop will be like a remailer, decrypt a layer, see where to send it next and send it on. And eventually it would be a regular email address and you receive it. But to get an email back, there has to be a a kind of instruction, encrypted instruction that is persistent that points back at you. So in principle, you could go to each hop on the way back and demand that they decrypt it. And there would be a computer or a human that would be able to decrypt it. And that would ultimately identify you so it's interesting to try and find other ways to architect that that wouldn't have that problem um so that that, things like that were what i was interested in and also trying to make you know trying to trying to deploy an electronic cash system is something that the cypherpunks were very interested in because you know many of these services needed payment and financial privacy is um, an important factor in i mean financial activity is an important part of you know, human activity and being able to do that online with privacy was obviously important, um, but difficult to do, so yeah.
0: So given, given that uh, potential capability of encryption and given that you came from a, you know, let's say a family that kind of prioritized independent thinking and and skewed toward perhaps, you know, privacy and independence more than the the average family. Was, was your first initial involvement with all this stuff, was it just to try to create money on the internet or was there also an element of government shouldn't control money? What, did that permeate the, the motivation as well?
1: I mean, actually, the, I think um, different people were looking at it with different assumptions. And so I think if people had a clearer problem statement, they might have, might have reached Satoshi's solution faster. Mm -hmm. Um, So, I mean, sometimes a big input to solving a problem is to state it in a clearer way, you know, or a different way. And so I think a lot of people were looking at, you know, because the previous electronic cash system by David Chorm, he had a startup in the Netherlands, and it was very private, very anonymous, but centralized. And the concept was you know, the way they went about the business was there was no mining. The only way to create coins, they conceived, was to form a partnership with a bank. You would transfer money to the bank. They would issue you coins. You could redeem the coins, destroy them, and get your money back in the bank account. And so that was the kind of way they proposed to interface this technology to money. And so they didn't have mining. Um, And so I think a lot of people, you know, sometimes people look at the history and assume that the future must work the same as the history and try and fix it from that direction. And so they didn't think about a floating value solution. And it's much harder to make a decentralized system in that way because how, how would you fix a value? You know, Because people certainly thought about how do we synthetically peg the value of a coin to a dollar in a distributed system? Well, a distributed system doesn't know what a dollar is or what its price is versus computation or anything like that, right? So that kind of Assumption was a bad one, I think. So it took people a while to get over, you know, to, to work around that. I think other people, even already then, had a, had an outlook that they wanted to see currency reform. So they were kind of, you know, gold bugs philosophically, and actually wanted to reform government or were concerned about inflation and uh, government control of money supply and things like that. So I think Nick Sabo was more in that uh, that school of thought. Um, and in a way, and I mean, obviously in hindsight, a lot of things, you know, the, the Bitcoin solution, I, I think you can understand Bitcoin at many levels, like, but at the highest level, it's relatively easy. And then you go down, there's more and more technical details, but, you know, at the economic level, in hindsight, it, it looks elegant and you would think, well, why didn't people see that? And, mm-hmm. you know, it certainly feels like that in hindsight, right? But mm-hmm. um, I think, uh you know for example the DigiCash server they they ran a demo server and they said they would limit it to a million coins uh i think they bucks in the name like cyberbucks or beta bucks or something and they said they'd only issue a million of them and they would email you a few if you would you know if you, if you would email and ask they would send you a few coins so some of the Cypherpunks decided to try and run an experiment and like you know, let's let's just try it. We can probably bootstrap some value if it's really actually scarce. And so because it had bucks in the name, people just treat it as a dollar, had no redeemability, but they figured they could float a value. And, you know, that experiment might have worked and gone somewhere, but the company went bankrupt in the middle of it. And and so the the double spend database disappeared because it was centralized. So you couldn't tell anymore if a coin was spent or not. So, Uh, You could see from that that it should have, you know, you could make a connection from that being people participating in and trying to float a value to that. Why not try and float a value? And, um, and certainly Bitgold and B-Money, probably more Bitgold had some floating value concepts, right? He was just going to, you know, let people, the, the sketch design for that was to, uh, People mine coin, mine uh, stamps. He called them stamps, as as fast as they want. Like no guideline on how many to make. And then, after the fact, with human market intelligence, somebody would collect. So periods where lots of stamps were made would be considered not rare, and periods where very few stamps were made would be considered rare and therefore more valuable. And then that human Collector would assemble these stamps into like a, a fixed value stamp book, and and that would be a coin. That was his concept, but it you know it has that market thing in it, and you know that fixed value stamp book is um, you know would would the value of that coin be stable? I don't know. You know would it would it be fixed in dollar terms or would it fluctuate? It's not clear. So there's some kind of uh, you know leap there, but I think people were pretty quickly. With with the introduction of hashcash for you know, for remailers initially, it did immediately occur to many people that in in online discussion that it was a bit like digital gold, um, but they couldn't quite figure out how to make that into a respendable money and adjust for you know they kind of like the difficulty adjustment problem. They didn't know mm-hmm. how to solve it.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, we'll, we'll jump around on the timeline quite a bit here yeah. in this discussion. So, uh, but it is interesting to to consider that, you know, the, the first people that were trying to tackle this problem as a default assumption, they were like, well, if we're making, if we're trying to reinvent money, it's got to have some value, right? Otherwise it's not money. So it's funny that that default assumption, you know, obviously permeated their work or was, was instrumental in their work. But then of course, you know, when Bitcoin emerged, it took the, you know, not maybe not the opposite, but a different approach from saying, these are the attributes of this system, you know, pure market valuation. And this, you know, people still get hung up on this, right? Because Bitcoin isn't backed by anything or if you ascribe to the regression regression theorem or something like that, you're like, well, what's there? You know, what's, what's behind it? And it's so interesting that, you know, the innovation was just allowed to exist with a certain set of attributes, and then over time, well, it continually, it's finding its, its market value, right? Even, you know, 12, 13 years later, that's what's happening. And we'll probably, you know, be doing that in an extreme way for the next 10 years plus. But it's it's funny that just, just that simple, like mental, not hang up, but like mental shift is what allowed or is what maybe prohibited some from you know, making something like Bitcoin earlier and was such a a unique aspect of Bitcoin's launch uh, when it did come about?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, there's a couple of things. I think on a technical basis, you know, Bitcoin showed that it was possible to make a decentralized electronic cash system and solve some of the human decision policy aspects of Bit Gold and Bee Money, in a fully automated, decentralized way. If you just if you just fix the supply curve and you let the market value the coins as it wishes, and it turns out that you can do because you can, you know, you can measure the supply and you can't measure the external price, and then the market does the rest. So um, that that is one thing. I think another thing is you know apart from that that apparent technical dependency, if it had been possible to build an electronic cash system with a US dollar or euro stable value, um, it might not have been adopted as quickly because it would have the utility and the privacy and the permissionlessness, but it wouldn't have had an economic incentive to invest in it. And I think that, you know, Bitcoin has a lot of interesting properties and people get involved for different reasons. And then the idea grows on them and they learn more, learn more about money, about, you know, the balance of power between governments and individuals, and their their reasons to get introduced to it could be, you know, somebody shows them how to buy a cup of coffee with, you know, lightning payment, or they think about it as an investment opportunity without understanding very much yet. And so some of that would be missing. And I think also the, the mining aspect, now, of course, people were thinking about mining uh, already in these earlier protocols. They were trying to figure out how to make a stable, US dollar stable price with mining. But I think that, you know, in either case, that mining a coin that has a potential to increase in value was probably, you know, is, is, is a fairly important part of what makes Bitcoin work. And... Maybe work at an economic level, right? It, it has this whole class of economic actors of miners, many of who are Bitcoin holders and investors. And in the early days, you know, like before Bitcoin really had a market price or an exchange, I got to think that the you know human engagement in figuring out how to mine and collect coins and trade them around was part of what helped it to bootstrap. And if it was just you know a dollar fixed thing that you somehow got into the system, you know, being able to convert a dollar into something and out something might not have been as exciting. It could be, it'd be more like a stable coin, right? So you could, you could say that those early attempts were trying to build a stable coin via mining. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it's it's so fascinating because when you think of, you know, Bitcoin, because of the way that it's, let's say economics were structured in the way you just kind of articulated, you know, it's, it's pure, valuation like it, all it is is the value re- we ascribe to it right which i think is why we're all so enthusiastic about it. It, it it is you know pure value signal it's not you know it's not discretionary in any way no one's no one's assigning a value to it you know and this this is why i think so many of us end up going down like the what is money rabbit hole because one, I think it's expanded our notion of what money is, how it comes about, how it becomes valued, what its function is in society. What are the, what's the interplay between, you know, almost psychology and markets and individual economic interaction, you know, it's, it's such a rich, it's, I think it's opened up a very rich world of, of intellectual inquiry for a lot of us, you know, because it is this, you know, portal to a new way of conceptualizing money, but it's, it's so fascinating that all it did was set some parameters And allow us to confront it and say, what do you think these are worth? What do you think what this is able to do is worth to markets and people and that kind of stuff? And again, like we're answering that question in in the form of a hell of a lot, it seems, you know, and still so early days, you know, so.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I think there are lots of things about that. And, you know, it, it certainly causes one to read more about monetary history and monetary economics, which Nick Szabo had coincidentally written blog posts about, you know, I I think dating before Bitcoin already. Had that Um, been
0: an interest of yours, like coinciding with basically starting to think about making a cryptographic money?
1: No, I was just like looking at it from the uh, stable, the stable, like how to build a decentralized stable coin, which supposed to be not possible, which is like why nobody succeeded to do that. Right. Bitcoin is possible. But I think that, you know, in hindsight, So in hindsight, it appears that the investment incentive to buy Bitcoin, assuming that if you personally enjoy the permissionlessness and open nature of it, that others will too, and that will grow in adoption, itself helps the adoption and helps educate people and give people an incentive to become educated and learn about it. And the benefits of that, knock-on benefits of uh, thinking about investment, many, many people spend much of a disposable income, and Bitcoin often converts them into long-term savers and investors and things like that. So it's, it's fascinating. And I think the an, an argument also for, you know, for in, in the sense that Bitcoin doesn't have uh, something intrinsic. So, you know, it's, it's not a claim on a physical gold bar or barrels of oil or something, right? Um, so, you know, it has a lot of similarities with gold, obviously. And a friend of mine is a kind of gold, like an anti-gold bug. And his point is, look, <clears throat> you know, productive farmland, potable water, these are things of value. Uh, you can't eat gold if push comes to shove. So from that point of view, they're equivalent, right? I mean, okay, gold is shiny, but, you know, maybe we marvel at the, uh, inventiveness of the Bitcoin design and the amount of proof of work on them, it's like aesthetics, right? So so from that point of view, it's similar, but I think the, you know, people propose all kinds of different structures and compare it to, compare Bitcoin to political money. And I guess many of the altcoins look a bit more like companies with governance and centralized management and things like that. And And then you get like the proof of stake, which is kind of a bit like shares in a company where you can buy them, you can amass enough or borrow enough, you can like take control and uh, do a hostile takeover of the chain or the company, right? So, uh, or or undo the chain, like roll it back. And so I think that it's, you know, it took me a while to to get this uh, thought But I I got asked a few times about proof of stake because there are a number of altcoins that are marketing proof of stake at the moment. I think that's what makes it topical to um, media interviewers um, in a a mainstream media segment. And so I, I think that maybe it might be the case that a commodity money, whether it's physical or virtual, needs a, a physical cost, like an unavoidable, like consumption of resources in order to make more of it. Because otherwise it's all a policy question, right? And we've seen the policy is malleable and it's even in the Genesis quote, right? It should be like a very, I mean, you've got to say that quote looks good like so many years later, but I mean, it was, it was a product of the 2008, you know, presumably a product of its time, right? The 2008 financial crisis, the uh, moral hazard argument and, you know, these politicians including a- and bank governors who had gone out on a limb and, you know, written articles in like the financial times before the uh, Bitcoin Genesis quote. I think this is Mervyn King, who was not, I think, not the author of that quote, but he he was like the governor of the Bank of England and he he was arguing against moral hazard. Like we should let the companies fail. The only way for the economy to adjust is for people who have taken undue risk to feel the pain of it, absorb that risk, and that will inf- you know, lead to a few companies go bankrupt, the assets are bought by new management, new investors, and then they take the, uh, you know, they make them into efficient and well-operated companies. And that will be a good thing. Whereas you get instead this kind of social bailout thing. So, you know, he was saying all this, and then, you know, the pressure kept building and building, and eventually, you know, the Bank of England folded basically and did what the politicians wanted and, you know, printed an absolute ton of money, bailed out banks that deserve to go bankrupt. And there's the moral hazard, right? So you know, if you st- still now looking at, you know, if we look at the Genesis quote in hindsight, it, it looks still like very relevant today. Well, I mean, of course, you know, we're in another quantitative easing situation already, but um, it, it does mean that you, you, maybe you need more than policy to make something stick. So you can't, you know, if you're, if you're mining gold, and the politicians say we really need more gold. There's not much they can do about it because gold is gold. I mean, they can, you know, uh, what, what do you call it when they adulterate the coinery, like they mix it with copper or something, right? They can mm-hmm. they can do that kind de- of thing.
0: Debase de or clear. That's or anything it. Like yeah.
1: That. yeah, yeah. So I mean, they could do that, but ultimately, people can tell the difference. They can test the gold, uh, weigh it, or what have you. And so you can't do it. And so that kind of decentralized, verifiable, physical prevention of debasement and a physical cost to produce more. You can't just say, well, we need more gold because there's bad financial times. Some companies made some ridiculous risks. So we've got to bail them out it will be too painful. You can't do it like this. It just can't be done. So I think, you know, if you look at Bitcoin, it's, it's basically the only thing that can stand up to that same you know, it stands up to the um, moral hazard risk because all these guys, you know, like Mervyn King particularly, you know, really went out on a limb and insisting that moral hazard should be resisted. Uh, as far as I recall, because I was like reading, you know, financial things at the time, that, you know, he they folded not very long after that because the pressure got too much for them. So that, that means to me that any kind of political money, which proof of stake shares in a company, human policy making, I mean, the words don't matter at some point, right? You know, somebody's arms gonna get twisted. Somebody's gonna be pushed out. Any, any kind of bureaucracy can generally be co-opted. Company votes don't mean that much ultimately when you, when it's a country level. So yeah, I think that that's why Bitcoin is different and kind of, you know, the money sort of a next generation monetary technology taken over from gold.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you have highly discretionary money, you're going to have a highly discretionary economy built on top of it, you know, and back then, those moral hazard comments were probably unpopular. Today, they're basically non-existent. You know, this is how fast things devolve. And because there's no true limit, right, it, 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 it becomes all kind of a narrative game, an opinion game, a power game, who controls the the levers here. And, you know, I think the the unforgeable cost, costliness is what the, the the more unforgeable costliness, the more non discretionary, the more that thing is a pure representation of the value people are ascribing to it, not the artificial manipulations by whoever has control over it, right? And that again, like you said, that's what makes Bitcoin or one of the things that makes Bitcoin so special. And I think that that it has an absolute supply, where no matter the demand for it, ultimately that will not change. I mean that again that is something completely unprecedented and novel and unique in the in the human sphere and i think right. we're still yeah. grappling with the true implications all, of all that but one of the interesting questions and you know for someone who was around in the early days i wonder and then, you know i'll ask you the question later you know how has your image of and the implications of bitcoin evolved and changed over the years because i'm sure it has to some degrees but how credible like how credible did you think The supply cap was in the early days because it's fine to say it's fine to even recognize you know do you see the value in a a money that can't be manipulated and that can't be inflated we might say yes but then the natural next question would be well how do i know it's not going to change right how credible is that
1: yeah i mean i thought it should be i thought that was sacrosanct like that's not going to change but there is you know the the risk arising from the folk drama was very related. So it was basically a large part of the ecosystem like exchanges and miners and some users versus some activist investors and a lot of investors who didn't really know what to expect. And my feeling was that, um, you know, Bitcoin would lose its value if some players could force a political change, basically. It didn't really matter what the change was, even if it was benign, right? And so that was a kind of test. And, you know, I put my money where my mouth was and, you know, sold the fork futures and that kind of thing. But it was it was a scary time. Like, I felt like it should succeed. But sometimes, you know, there's, there's a risk that some people who don't understand enough things about... Know, how things work, you know, like lemmings can all run off a cliff, right? right? And maybe they get enough momentum that they cause some damage to the underlying system, and it takes a while to repair it. So that was the kind of fear. And you know, ultimately the free market won. And that was, I think, you know, one of the most bullish and compelling uh, tests for Bitcoin, that it survived a an attempted political change. Now, of course, the people involved in the political change thought they were doing, you know, trying to construct something useful to make it scale in a simplistic way or something, but they went about it in the wrong way, which they tried to, you know, assemble and force a change. And that in itself would have, I think, significantly degraded the, um, you know, the, the sort of security and dependability of the system. So the fact that it survived that I think then, okay, like the 21 million is, you know, it's unassailable after that. And before that, you would think that would be not, you know, not the thing that people go after, right? Because um, and I've heard some monetary econom- economists make the opinion that it doesn't matter that much what the inflation rate is, whether it's, you know, one and a half percent or two and a half percent or something but rather that it's predictable. And so, you know, if Bitcoin had started with a supply cap of, you know, 42 million, it it probably wouldn't have mattered because we would just be operating with, you know, half coins, right? So that that one is clear. If the supply curve had been steeper or shallower, you know, as long as it wasn't extreme, just some minor variation, probably that would work too. But I think the bigger point is you don't want to, you know, don't want to have political meddling and changing because that makes it less dependable. And you know, with the assumption that it should be a digital version of gold, you can't argue with you know a gold atom is a gold atom, right? You can't say, well, let's just, you know, count lead as the same because they're running low on gold. Or well, I mean then you get into the debasement issue, right? So I think that you want the base to be super dependable and immutable over the long term, in order for it to be considered store of value, you know, if it it can change, or if it could be fad, like where people switch to new coins and new systems, the store of value is probably perpetually gone. Um,
0: Yeah, I, I agree with that. But, you know, it's so it's so interesting to think of these some of the seemingly arbitrary parameters, right? Like, as you say, whether it's 21, 42, 50. Whether the supply schedule, the new issuance schedule is, you know, changes every four years, whether the block, you know, the uh, difficulty adjustment is, you know, a month, you know, how would all of this have affected things? And maybe the answer is very little, but maybe it's not. And, you know, I, throughout the course of these debates, both from, you know, the Bitcoin side of, you know, Bitcoin community and the broader, you know, economists and and monetary side of things which in my opinion is is less credible but you know when you're confronted with seemingly arbitrary parameters of course it's going to instill in some people the notion that they can be improved upon like well why not you know like if if they're just arbitrary and we're confronting a problem well why don't we tweak them so that so that things can be improved and what i think a lot of Bitcoiners understand, but a lot of but relatively few people on the whole understand, or this is my opinion, I'd love to get yours. What, the thing that makes it most valuable, the things that allows it to be that kind of uh, gravity well that we can ascribe value to and to have it generate a completely pristine value from all of our, uh, the application of all of our preferences and all of our own subjective valuation to it is its unchanging nature. So like you may have a transient notion as what happened in, let's say, the block size uh, debate, like, well, wouldn't, it not this just an easy tweak and then we solve a problem? Like, yeah, you may be right, but when does, if you do that now, when does that stop? If you set, right. you know, if you set that precedent, isn't it always right. going to be the case? And then you slowly creep into, or perhaps not so slowly, creep in back into discretionary monetary policy, for example, and then you ruin the entire enterprise, right? So right. it's almost like, Imposing arbitrary limitation, even on an imperfect system, is more valuable than trying to perfect a system. And that's something that some people have a difficult time grappling with. I think.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's certainly an argument used as to, you know, they 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 would have said, you know, well, why why one megabyte? Why not two? Or why not half a megabyte? And that, that's a nice kind of slippery slope argument. Um, and uh, so I think, I think that's the point that, you know, it shouldn't be easy to change. And in fact, it appears not easy to change because there's so much verification. You know, anybody who chooses to, most service providers, many power users are actually verifying. So if you change the parameter without them opting to upgrade the software, it wouldn't happen, right? You'd end up with two networks. Mm-hmm. And obviously, two two networks is a bad outcome for everybody. That that just reduces certainty, unless unless one of them you know falls rapidly in price, which is also what happened. Um, so, yeah, I think there's that. I think another thing that people maybe don't see, or their intuition says shouldn't be the case, and in this case, re- there it's a reasonable assumption. So most uh, new software, technologies, protocols, even, you know, electronics, cars, all all these things. You have a crude first version and it's a footnote in history and it gets replaced by newer and better things over time, right? And um, so that's people's intuition. And like as a normal trend, that's a good intuition because that happens with a lot of things. But I think it doesn't apply to Bitcoin. And, you know, I, I also started with that assumption and I spent, I got like deep into the sort of pulled into the Bitcoin rabbit hole pretty, pretty deep in 2013 in terms of looking at the protocol, spent months and months trying to think about any way to improve the protocol, you know, make it so that it would be easier for people to mine with small amounts of hash rate. Maybe like you, you maybe need a kind of minimum today or to make it lower latency, to make it more private, to make it more decentralized. So all kinds of interesting and potentially valuable properties from the point of view of somebody from a distributed systems background. And, you know, I'm fairly inventive of like network and distributed system protocols and applied crypto. So I figured, well, maybe I can improve it in some way and then I can propose the incremental improvement to developers. And if they think it's cool, maybe they will like work on it. And so, you know, I spent about four months trying to improve it in any way at all. And I basically discovered that it's not really improvable. So, you know, you could, you could improve one aspect of it, but typically you'd make two or three other things worse. And so it's, um, it's actually, I, th- I think, so, so the experience is, is not just the, you know, oh, you're, you're arguing that it's magically, these magic numbers are perfect, but that's not the point. But the point is that, you know, because some of them are arbitrary numbers, like 21 versus 41 or 42 million, mm-hmm. whatever, right? But that doesn't change the economic effect. But in terms of a network behavior or how it works, I think, I think the, I mean, it's Bitcoin is kind of a mathematical artifact in a way, right? It's sort of almost discovered rather than invented. And I think if you think about the design space of potential distributed electronic cache systems, it's like a very narrow pocket of design surface that works and everything else is worse. And so that is, maybe that's why it was hard to find, like why people tried for a long time and didn't find a system that could work. And why trying to improve it doesn't really seem to work because you just get knocked out of this kind of local optima, and there doesn't seem to be any, That seems like to be a global optima too. Mm -hmm. So I think the only, like my experience is the only really um, interesting potential technical improvement is, I mean, there's lots of like incremental improvements that's happened and layer twos and things like that. But in terms of the core protocol, the only thing that could really change the game, I think, is this uh, new signature execution technology like snarks and things. Uh, it's a very interesting piece of computer science tech that can do some counterintuitive things. I think that could you know and there needs to be more, more work on the scalability and security and stuff, but that might be usable to to make things not, not to change its semantics, but to make it more efficient or something. Yeah I mean so, like you- so I think that's that's why um, people get perplexed because they make a reasonable intuition, but it seems to be super unusual in systems in the world, and having, being in this narrow design space that only just works, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's curious. Exactly,
0: and, and I think because it's such a paradigm shift, that's why <clears throat> there's so much discussion and perhaps disagreement about it, but I, I think, and I agree that I think it's something that was discovered more so than invented or equally, or some, some relationship there that perhaps we haven't experienced before. And I, I kind of think about Bitcoin like a physical law, Right? you you might say well wouldn't it be great if gravity was a little bit less and we could jump higher and our you know our we our bodies wouldn't degenerate as quickly and that kind of thing but the thing is is we conform and optimize for the absolute parameters if 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 we were capable of always changing those physical laws think it would be mayhem and we we'd probably completely lose the ability to exist because it would be it would be too uh Yeah, too chaotic. It would change too much for us to establish, you know, permanence and build things around that permanence. And I think of Bitcoin in a similar way. I mean, and of course, there's an interesting discussion about, um, you know, kind of human beings, almost godlike power to have been participatory in the, the discovery of a law that's that around which we We coalesce and which forms us ultimately. I mean, that may in itself be an extremely unique aspect of all this, but the punchline for me is keep it as an absolute impermanent thing on on the base level and we will naturally coalesce around that. We will use it as a limit of some kind or we'll, we'll conform to those parameters. And if we can do that, I think we get the maximum benefit out of it. Like if we can be humble enough to approach it in that way. But if we don't, if we kind of uh, maybe have the arrogance to say, like, every little thing can change based on our ultimately transient and likely imperfect understanding of things, then that's kind of the hubris that destroys things, right? And that's why I think, you know, humility is such an important aspect of preserving this discovery that we've made.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think um, there are maybe some other analogies, like, in nature, like, you know, basically all of life on earth is using the same DNA building blocks, right? right. Um, and in, uh, in, in computer networking, you know, basically everything's built around TCPIP and that's been around for a really long time at this point. And, you know, people are not, mm-hmm. you know, standing up, you know, TCBI, TCPIP green or TCPIP green, version 34 and it's better in some minor way that if they are gonna do something, they're gonna build on top of it or make a protocol optimized for something that uses the same, like the lower level, the IP level. And so I think it's just, you know, open and interoperable networks tend to win because they capture network effects and um, innovation, I guess, you know, um, so if if you get too much proprietary thinking and fragmentation, it, it doesn't lead to as good an outcome. So, um, so I think, and and it, and it may be, it tends for the for the economic incentives to recursively fragment. So you see that phenomena with altcoins, where you know many of the founders of new altcoins are like the previous marketing director of another altcoin, the previous CEO of another altcoin. And that's that's because, you know, if, if people are incentivized to, you know, ring value out of a system and then start a new one, if that's the, you know, as opposed to, you know, building on top of a thing of value and trying to build something of shared value, it's a different value system. Right. But I think it sort of recursively fails for bad incentive reasons, which is, you know, people extract the value they can, they tap it out and then they go do it again. And while there are members of the public who can't distinguish, um, they can continue to do that. Mm-hmm. So I think those things are ultimately uh, not really sustainable and it makes a lot more sense to you know, build on top of one system, um, yeah.
0: I agree and I find it uh, an interesting and counterintuitive sort of philosophical framing when you say that, you know, a, a, an absolute parameter is a limitation, right? And you know, limitation is what permits form, right? If there wasn't forces acting upon us to effectively mold us, then we wouldn't be molded. We're shaped by the forces that we we cannot negotiate with, and that's what what I see Bitcoin as. And as a result of an absolute limitation like Bitcoin, we we're talking about you know valuing Bitcoin before and how early, uh, you know, eCash cash uh, innovators were thought they had to ascribe a value, you know, build a stable coin, that kind of thing. I mean, what from where does the value that people subjectively ascribe to Bitcoin come? And I think ultimately it comes from freedom, right? The freedom to hold, you know, your surplus capital in the form of money that can't be taken from you, that can't be diluted, that you can that no one can intermediate that you can send and use freely, right? Like the, 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 the in my opinion, the the, the the bulk of Bitcoin's value is because it represents a freedom of money in relation to and contrasted with the options that are available, The all the other options that are available. So it's interesting that you have an absolute parameter, an absolute limitation that actually grants a higher degree or even an absolute freedom in certain senses um, than anything ever experienced, right? You have, it, again, I think that's counterintuitive. Absolute limitation grants absolute or, or great high degree of freedom. And it's, uh, how much is that worth? Well, we're finding it out, but it's, you know, right now it's worth a trillion bucks and in the future, probably a lot more. And it's, you know, I, that I love to think about how Bitcoin is reflecting at us how much each of us as individuals value freedom. And this is the process of, of it emerging on the world.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the um, it's interesting. I mean, I try to keep an open mind on new developments in general, like, you know, science and technology limits and things, because you never know. I think it takes people longer to learn and appreciate things than they expect you know they see it once they superficially understand it i got it right but actually i think there's a lot of wisdom in accumulated understanding over years or centuries even right so you know some of the showing points of how society works and how economies work and things are probably learned by lots of trial and error and perfected over time so i think we're know, even even if you're whether you're interested in Bitcoin from an economics perspective or monetary perspective or technology perspective or some mix of them, I think every everybody is you know learning things from it and you know gradually cementing and adapting their appreciation for it, and it grows on you over time. It's really a interesting thing. So, I mean, on the um, you mentioned something about uh, Bitcoin supply being much more inelastic than gold. So gold, for example, if the price goes up a lot, there is some elasticity to the supply. You know, they can work shifts in a gold mine or reopen a closed down gold mine because it becomes economical again and reverse if the price is low. But Bitcoin won't do that. It's just, you know, almost like clockwork, I mean there's small variations, but very small, almost like clockwork, it's gonna just Keep producing blocks, and that has to have, uh, you know, an economic effect. A different economic effect in the system, like um, so. Maybe maybe there's something to the stock to flow, you know, simplified model uh, that falls out of that. We'll see if that holds. And the other thing you mentioned is um, the. Let's see where is again going with this one. Uh, Oh yes, yeah. So, so different forms of money. I mean, Bitcoin is a new form of monetary technology and monetary technology has evolved over centuries and millennia. And so I think it's just a new, better monetary technology, but I think there's a theory that, um, a money that has an intrinsic value, like an industrial use ends up being a, an inferior money because its industrial use will compete with its monetary use. Like right. if it's if it's monetary if it's industrial use, let's say it was copper or something. If that was scarcer, it's and, and gold is used in electronics too as a good conductor. So, you know, if if it's uh, electronics use is in high demand, that places stress on the monetary use and vice versa. So, I think mean, in in that way of thinking, Bitcoin is a superior commodity monetary tech, because there is no industrial use, which could, you know, reduce the quality of it as a commodity money, plus then it has this more rigid and predictable supply curve. And I think generally predictability is, is good uh, for monetary things. So I think those are interesting things to look at as well.
0: Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. What do you think, you know, we're talking about the unchanging nature, the absolute, you know, limitations that Bitcoin represents and how they are positives. What's your impression about what went down with SegWit uh, and the block size and what that represented in terms of change to the core uh, protocol? Um,
1: Well, I think that the changes, so Luke Dasher, uh, Gave a pretty good presentation, I thought, at the Bitcoin conference uh, in Chile a few years ago. The video is online somewhere. And I think people probably largely would intuit what he was saying, but it was interesting to hear him spell it out logically, which is so he's basically saying that there's actually, you know, changes that can happen in Bitcoin are, um, you know, what. They're typically, so he was trying to present a framework for logically thinking about what kinds of changes might be accepted in Bitcoin and why that would be. And so he he was sort of placing value judgments around well, you know, you can't deprive other people of money. So you should, the A change should not result in freezing or adversely affecting an existing Bitcoin holder. And you now, obviously, it shouldn't change like the coin, the the 21 million cap and, you know, things like this. And so I think people look at the rate of change of Bitcoin and see, you know, new versions with new opcodes and futures and they they think, oh, look, it can change. It's no problem. But actually, if you look at the actual nature of those opcodes, they are uh, all soft forks and they are opt-in by design. And that's for for a reason, right? Which is then it's not gonna affect you if you don't use it. And of course, there's also a lot of security testing because reducing the security of the network would be a very bad outcome. So that'd be an unethical thing to do, like to rush a change that could affect other people's security, let's say. Um, And so the the individual changes being opt-in is interesting so it's basically saying that you know if you look at the gold analogy are nobody is looking to change the number of atoms in a i mean so the, the number of electrons in a gold atom or neutrons or something right so they're not trying to like swap it out for something else but they are you know maybe optimizing the gold melting process or something they're, they're doing something which is you know just Making it slightly more efficient to use, or enabling some new use cases, or you know, enabling a bit more programmability without, ch- and, and to, you know, never removing a functionality or capability. So that means it, it can be sort of immutable in that you know everything you relied on before remains the case, nothing that used to work stops working, and nobody is forced to use something; everything is opt-in, and so that kind of overcomes this dichotomy between well how can it change if it's immutable well it can change by having opt-in things and people are much more inclined to you know say well i don't care about that feature but it doesn't hurt me and if they care about it for their use case then like you know as long as it's well security tested then it's not something that people are going to be uh, vying to you know uh, stop happening or you know Mm -hmm. create a some kind of economic contest about, you know, wanting to block it or something. Do so, you think, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, go
0: ahead. I, I was just going to say, do you think, so basically you're saying, you know, make sure everything's backwards compatible, right? But do, do you think there are limits to even approaching things in that way? And I mean, you bring up Luke and it just triggers my, my memory. I know other people have commented on, on this as well, but let's say a current thing, right? With... Not many fees being generated, empty, you know, uh, that that kind of thing. Not a lot, a lot of block space availability, and the thinking goes, well, let's just shrink the block space; it'll increase the fees, and the security model will will be sound into the future. Where that, to me, falls into the category of our kind of hubris and and transient understanding and assumptions of things being a danger. Where I'm more in the camp that says, no, let it be an immutable law and the activity and the incentives will all form around it have uh, kind of have faith in the permanence of it again don't try to tweak and change everything for transient preferences or or assumptions uh what are your thoughts on that
1: yeah i tend to agree i mean i think people will i guess it's like politics right you know politicians tend to react to short-term news and then make Changes that have adverse long-term or unexpected consequences. So doing so, I guess Bitcoin should be like the ents in the Tolkien series, right? That they are, you know, looking at the long time frame, they resist short-term change. So, you know, if you if you have something that is a very long-term savings uh, component like Bitcoin. You should be very careful about making changes that might have unintended side effects in the future. So, you can, I think Bitcoin can easily afford to wait and see on a lot of things. And also, I mean, just because uh, Bitcoin has worked in a certain mode doesn't mean it can't work in other modes, which is to say, you know, it's worked in high fee environments in the sense that that has incentivize layer 2 adoption and technology building. I think it, it will continue to work in you know lower fee environments and that Bitcoin could continue to work in really some very adverse circumstances which we think are low probability like you know some kind of unforeseen uh, security defects or network split or something that you know create a big mess, I think that you know, if you look at monetary technology in use, Bitcoin is far more robust than um, you know, electronic uh, wire transfers, bank accounts, and things like that. And yet people continue to use them. So you know, if Bitcoin were to temporarily slip from you know, a very robust setup to you know, have a big security issue. I think that that would just get repaired and people would move forwards because, you know, the alternatives are far worse and people need money that works. So some people get you know overly anxious about what, you know, would Bitcoin be all over if you know the unthinkable happened. And I think no, it wouldn't because you know people want Bitcoin to work. They need a monetary technology. It's the best one we have, and you know typically any kind of issue can be worked around or repaired if, if there's a shared incentive to do so. Right.
0: What's the unthinkable in your mind?
1: Well, I mean, just some, something that, you know, accidentally forked the network for a day and made a bit of an accounting mess or something like that, you know, Um, like some kind of, Security bug that didn't get caught quickly enough and start to create a mess, for example. Right. Um,
0: so, do you think, think it 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 can't be destroyed? Basically, you know, because there's a there's a recognition of how it works. There's also the incentive to have it work, and therefore it'll be re no matter what. Or is there lines yeah. that can't be crossed?
1: No, I mean I think that it's much more robust than we think it is. So you could, you could view that. As a, an observe like a, as a lesson, if you like, from the fork drama that people were very nervous going into the forks, they thought, you know, it was all the sky was falling, it would be all over. That the forces against, you know, that the forces trying to force a change would succeed and that would, you know, kill the value, and you know, Bitcoin cruised through it, and you know. basically all the fears were overblown so it it proved to be more robust than people thought and i think if you look at i mean my opinion about why it 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 persevered through the folk drama is it was was a market-led outcome and the activist investors you know won the day and so you know bitcoin has a lot of activist investors like people who really want to buy more bitcoin and want to preserve its long-term value. And, you know, it's become part of their, you know, uh, human outlook, basically, right? So they do not want it to go away. So they will do some, you know, pretty extreme financial things to to preserve that. Um, You know, they will take hair-raising risks. They'll put enormous amounts of their net worth on the line. And uh, I think Vijay Boyati had an interesting uh, way to say this, which was there's a quote on Twitter somewhere where he says like, you know, when the, um, uh, it's a better way to say it, but basically when the people that are on the fence meet on a battlefield with the, you know, the people that are convinced, then the people that are convinced are just gonna easily win. So, you know, there's a lot of, despite posturing, there's a lot of indecision and uncertainty. And so, you know, maybe 10% of activists and investors who have a very strong conviction can just, you know, can, can save the day, basically. And Bitcoin yeah. has an enormous, you know, the the sort of buyers of last resort, the holders of last resort, those guys, you know, they're going to go down with a ship and that is basically the backbone that, you know, defines what Bitcoin is, what those guys think, right? So if, if people are uncertain and they don't trade, their voice is not really heard. I mean, they can, you know, talk and and write emails and uh, you know say that their company has this or that posture but it doesn't really matter if they don't do anything in the market you know mm-hmm. the, the miners are just mechanical bots that do what the market says and so they also have no resolve like they can't they can't afford to have a resolve because they'll be bankrupt within you know a few days um by the market So. So I think that you could use the same logic for something else dramatic happening in the technical sphere, um, which is, you know, the, the, the incentive for Bitcoin to continue to function is strong enough that it will, you know, f- the market will find a way, that's a kind of saying that people use, but in, a, but in a positive way in this sense, which is they want the Bitcoin that exists today to exist in the future. So if some obstacle arises that gets in the way of that they'll be willing to spend collectively tens or hundreds of billions of dollars to make that the case. Mm -hmm. And so that, you know, that kind of, you know, if they collectively decide that there's a solution and they put their economic weight behind it, then now that will be the solution. Um, yeah. So I think it's like very much more robust than people think, you know, what if, what if there's a bug in this, or what if this crashed everywhere or, you know, what if a government took over this? Or what if a government banned that? Like, None of that matters really. It's just uh, what the, I mean, it matters, but it, it won't stop the system or stop people valuing using Bitcoin, I think.
0: What I, what I find interesting about that, and I agree, but I think the um, the conviction that's inspired in those burn the boats people, of which I assume we're both one, um, I think a big part of that conviction, a big part of the the source of that kind of inspiration to have that attitude is the absoluteness and the immutability and the the unchangingness of the thing that they're defending or on the side of. You know, I think that's why you get such rampant conviction through a, you know, through a a psychological process that I'm sure, you know, probably hasn't been well articulated to point. but I, I think that's part of the reason why. So you know, maybe just to put a pin on this part of the the chat, but would would it be fair to say that you know, generally speaking, you think that ossification is a is the right way to approach
1: this thing? Well, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, there's there's a quote by Satoshi somewhere on the uh, Bitcoin talk forums or somewhere like that, which, which is, I mean, it's a, just a, a post right on a forum saying that he had rushed the implementation of, uh, some of the smart contracting features, like the opcodes, the scripting system. Um, I guess it's like a subsystem and the system could exist without it. It could just have, you know, signatures for transfer. So he'd rushed the, uh, um, the scripting system so that Bitcoin could be, I don't think he used ossified, but, you know, could be unchanging and could be extended using that scripting system. Now, that's pretty interesting, I think, that he would have uh, seen that it would be hard to to modify the system going forward, and it would be desirable to have a finished system that doesn't modify already at the beginning. Because, like, I think for most of us, it took us a while to, like, you know, firm up our opinions about how that works and why that works that way. Um, But, you know, of course in, in practice, in practice, those opcodes were not that expressive. And some of them were disabled in the earlier period due to some uh, bugs in like, you know, very early days uh, as a work as a kind of security workaround. But I think there, there is an interest to, you know, the more Technically and socially resolved people are that the system should be immutable, the better. Um, and I think some things are learned, even economic things. So I think, you know, the, the attempt at forks is probably learned. So if that would happen again, some of the people that were on the fence or who traded but timidly would have learned their lesson, right? I mean, they would have drawn a lesson from that and they would mm. not be on the fence. They would be trading against it or they would not have gone in timidly. They would have gone in hard. And so that, you know, that market lesson has now made the system economically more robust for the activists and investors that they're just going to jump on that and, you know, uh, economically uh, attack or vote against the outcome. So that kind of thing is uh, learned, I guess, um, and then I think there is prospect for, you know, there's another prospect for um, more permanent um, ossification, which is a new script system. So there's a 2012, I think, IRC discussion by Russell O'Connor, who was um, uh, had implemented one of the, Uh, Bitcoin implementations in Haskell, which is a kind of logic-related language. And he'd uncovered a number of kind of edge cases and bugs because he'd implemented something that tried to be compatible. Um, So he proposed um, what he called MAST. So a lot of people have heard of MAST, but he actually had in mind uh, a version two script system, like a next generation script system for Bitcoin. So uh, we recruited him Uh, Blockstream, you know, a few years later. And so we've been working on a team working on this uh, next generation script system for Bitcoin and Liquid. I mean, Liquid is, you know, very, it's a Bitcoin extended thing. So it inherits, you know, most of the script properties and things like that. So we've been working on this sort of next generation script system, which is a way to make uh, Bitcoin script self-extensible. So you can, you know, write new opcodes and something like Schnorr wouldn't need a soft fork. You could just implement it natively. And this, this script system is, you know, still in the, it's very Bitcoin like. It still has the UTXO model. It has, so it's backwards compatible. You can soft fork it in. It, um, it has a logic basis at the low level. So you can make formal proofs about, the behavior of a script and the behavior of an opcode, and you can prove equivalence between uh, an interpreted version and a C implementation. Um, So anyway, it has a lot of framework for making security proofs about its behavior. And in a way, this could be, you know, this could get to this ossification quote of Satoshi, which is because it's next generation and it's lower level and it's more self-extensible, um, it could potentially be the soft fork to end soft forks, because because some people have said, well, you know, really, if you want ossification, soft forks should be somehow blocked. We shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't have any more soft forks um, or changes in general. So that that might do it. Uh, now, you know, we we were we've been working on this. We've we've released developer releases of it over the last few years, and we're hoping to get it into liquid next year, but. You know Bitcoin moves on a cautious and conservative way. So I would expect that's, you know, if that were to get into Bitcoin, I think that's a few years down the road. But it is one path to get to ossification, which is to make the self-extensibility more general, but do it in a constrained way that doesn't, you know, change the model. So it doesn't introduce states and race conditions and new. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a very, I mean, I think it fits into the Bitcoin. Concepts and programming models very tidily, basically. So, it it would be a a fitting next gen scripting which could work in parallel with the current scripting. So, that'd be one way to get to ossification. I mean, some people have said that you know they are okay if uh, it ossifies now, (laughs) and I've certainly talked with uh sort of professional investors who hold Bitcoin or people with you know, Bitcoin as, as a big part of their savings. And if you ask them if they want some, you know, fancy new things like an, an improved version of Lightning, they, I mean, I think improved, no. versions, <laughs> yeah, like that improved versions of Lightning are good for the electronic cash use cases and adoption in El Salvador, but they will say, no, like, just, just don't break it. I'm, I'm okay, I don't really need any changes. And the main thing is it stays secure. So. I think, you know, Bitcoin is supported many use cases. So for the people looking at a store of value, they don't feel like they really need a lot of changes, right? In fact, changes are scary. So that's one mindset. And the other mindset is, you know, of course, the technologists who will like, incrementally improve things and enable use, new use cases and more, like the electronic cash use case. So I think that's one interesting debate you see in the, in Bitcoin Twers space, which is, um, should Bitcoin be an electronic cash system or should it be a digital gold? And and I would say well, why not both. But you know, if you right. had, if you had to choose one, it's an interesting question because I think that there are people who are more attracted to digital gold, who don't really mind, don't really care that much about the electronic cash use case. And I think Bitcoin could be financially uh, viable as a store of value technology without the electronic cash use case. Like, you know, if, if most of the Bitcoin ended up in ETFs and it became, you know, it, it competed with, you know, stocks and bonds and real estate and reached a hundred trillion uh, market cap, I think, but it was only like largely in ETFs and too expensive to use otherwise. That's that's not a great outcome to me because I like the permissionless electronic cash and that, that gives more of the human empowerment, but that digital gold use case is independently viable. So I think I think we want to see, you know, both succeed. And, and so layer twos help that, but um, it's interesting to see different people vying for different, Use cases and they're not always in 100% concert, right? Mm
0: -hmm. You know, it's that is an interesting discussion. And I, you know, I'm, I'm on your side. I think we have to have permissionless, you know, value transfer, effectively cash and money. That's what this is all about. I agree that if it were just digital gold, it would be an improvement on gold. But it's also, you know, kind of funny to, Realize that you would, if that were the case, you'd reintroduce the problems of gold too, right? So for example, gold's value to weight ratio was such that for smaller denominations for smaller payments, it wasn't uh, suitable, right? So something like silver had to come in, or you had to uh, centralize gold and issue receipts for gold to make it more transactable. if that were the, if, if, if we just only uh, stayed with the store of value, you know, digital gold, if that's how, what people want Bitcoin to be. I think, you know, basically the cost of transacting in it is equivalent to the value to weight ratio being too high in, in gold. And therefore it wouldn't be suitable to use it as such. And therefore you'd have to find other solutions. And I think what, what's happening now in Bitcoin is like, well, that's what's attempting to be done. Lightning being one, uh, one possible and one likely solution, um, but I think if if it was only the former, you'd probably end up getting a high degree of centralization ultimately as well, because there would still be a design. First of all, the the transactability and the velocity would be much lower, and I think that would jet, that would uh, lean towards centralization. But then, of course, you and and the you know people with more investable assets might be able to acquire more of it, and it wouldn't be distributed as as much. Um, so I think there would be a centralization component, uh, but then I think there would also be almost an inevitable desire to do more with it, and that's why the careful march toward trying to maintain the properties that Bitcoin instills and allowing for scalability is such a important conversation. Because if you just if you just left it the same and treated it as gold again, I think you get the same problems where you introduce trust back into the model in order to uh, establish a scalability of some kind. And here then we're back at square one almost. I mean, yes, some, some improvements, but, you know, a lot of the old problems.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that, um, you know, lightning can do a certain amount of things and there are other layer twos as well. Um, and maybe more layer twos in future that address scaling in a different way. Um, but I think if you look at the the main chain, it's it's good for uh, store of value, right? And so, you know, when you store value, you want to be able to transfer value. Well, like a store of wealth, I think Nick Szabo calls it. So you want to, you know, you store wealth so that you can use it in the future or pass it on to right. somebody or. Take, take a withdrawal from it or add to it. And so it has to be transactable. And they, you know, the censorship resistance store of wealth is, is the differentiator in a, in a lot of ways, right? So yes, a new digital gold that is only an ETF is financially viable, but it does lose some value and utility, like quite a lot, a differentiated utility, if it's not like on-chain transactable by people that want to do that. And unfortunately, you know, blockchains are hot scale, and there's a lot of uh, wealth disparities. So, what is a viable transaction fee to one person is not a viable transaction fee to somebody else. And exactly. ultimately, you know, we would like, as as kind of Bitcoin enthusiasts, that would like to see as many people as can, you know, as find this interesting, be able to use this technology to empower themselves and protect their you know, protect their savings better transact without permission it's a very positive thing for society so you'd want as many people as can to avail themselves of that but technology doesn't really easily provide for it right now so I think uh, you know you'd have I, I don't know what a transaction fee would need to be but I think um You know, if it gets too high, I mean, some people have made statements like, well, you know, Bitcoin will trend in the long term to be like central bank clearing where, you know, the minimum transaction size is millions of dollars and a transaction fee of a thousand dollars doesn't matter. It's noise. And like, I, I would view that as a failure really, because, you know, big entities like that don't really need permissionlessness typically, or, you know, they have other ways to, I mean, I think, you know, the world. Is um, has a lot more solutions available for wealthy people, right? So, you know, there's international banking, uh, asset protection, you know, even inside countries, if you employ accounting and legal professionals. And so people with, you know, a million dollars of liquid assets, like qualified investors, they can already protect themselves, right? And so what Bitcoin does in a way is provide that, cap- like reduce the barrier to entry to that kind of thing, right? So it's, uh, you know, Obama had it, right? The uh, Swiss bank account in your pocket. Mm. So, you know, you really want the the barrier to adoption to that to not be, you know, that much more than the cost of the mobile phone or something, right? You want to be able to transact, you know, $100 or $1,000. Now, I mean, of course, it doesn't mean you have to transact on chain with, you know, $1 of value because there's also fiat currency and other. And, 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 you know, a a custody solution even will be good enough for a very low value because, you know, if it, most low value transactions are not targeted for censorship or seizure, and if they are, it's not your wealth, it's some money that you might spend this week, right? So it's it's annoying it's inconvenient, but it's not gonna, you know, freeze your entire wealth or large part of it. So, so I think that, it's not clear what that threshold is because there's wealth disparity. But I think if if a transaction fee's got high enough um, to to like prevent use, that I would probably argue to uh, you know consider some trade-offs. Right? I mean, at that point, to uh, become a slight big blocker or something. Um,
0: but that that is what that is what lightning is right that that was well, the, yeah, yeah. the trade
1: off yeah. no definitely i mean lightning can solve a lot of problems in the sense that it, it moves the the retail micro payments out of the main chain and effectively is a huge block right i mean if you if you consider in the abstract sense the block the set of transactions in this 10 minutes mm-hmm. then lightning is you know a potentially gigabyte or terabyte block depending on adoption right and it's it's a scalable system in that the number of transactions per second increases as you add more nodes and links more channels so that's that's great but i think there may be use cases that are better served by on-chain use like long-term uh storing of savings, for example, right? It's harder to to do that in Lightning Channel Mm -hmm. because the Lightning Channel is, you know, somewhat online. I guess you could, like, take the keys offline, but then you, you need the other party to stay around and, like, there could be turnover. So in terms of the ability to, you know, write some seed words down and store them somewhere safe for five years, that kind of technology, I think Lightning is not suited to Mm. And the main chain is, or maybe store them for a year, you know, for, for longer periods of time, higher value. So I think in an ideal world, you know, it would be nice if technology provided solution for that. And maybe it will, right? Because there's, there's a lot of innovation. The signature of execution, the SNARK technology can can do some pretty amazing things. So maybe we end up with the opposite problem in, a, in, in five years, you know, where the blocks, where there's... Um, you know, the fees are zero because the scalability is infinite and it'll be a different problem right um, yeah, exactly. on ch- even on chain right so i wouldn't that's why we have, have to so
0: be so careful about assuming what the risks are and determining changes around that right
1: right yeah i mean i think some people get too uh looking at the long term without considering that you know worrying about the long term like well will bitcoin be stable and securable um when there's no sub- or less subsidy. But, you know, I mean, the price has more than doubled every four years and probably will for a few more decades at least, right? So I think that's not an immediate concern. And also, you know, to worry about that assumes there's no technical innovation between now and then. And I think there are some pretty, you know, so while the fundamentals, as I was describing, are not, don't seem to be that much amenable to major improvement, Um, as I say, I think the SNARK technology could make a generational shift to it. And that that could actually flip the problem on its head. So maybe we're worrying about the wrong thing. Um Mm. sort of, well, no, I mean it's the same thing, but you know, you uh like it it would could result in no fees or low fees, and um and lots of on chain scalability where people are worried about on chain scalability. So I wouldn't, you know, I think we can so far just work with what technology provides and trying to push technology as far as we can. This is the best we can do. Right. Um, but does it, does make for some interesting trade-offs and, you know, you could make the argument that, um, if fees are too high for some use cases, it tends to push them into other systems, right? And so that could be a positive thing, like it pushes people to adopt Lightning. And I think you know, that, that did happen, I think, at some periods where Bitcoin fees were high and then Lightning adoption spiked. It went through a rapid adoption phase. Then the fees dropped. A lot of fees are trading related. And so there are probably more technologies for moving Bitcoins between exchanges that don't involve on-chain transactions now, I think that may be part of it. Um, part of why the uh, transaction fees are a bit lower, even though the price is high, uh, r- relatively speaking, right? Um, so yeah, I think like like you say, it's just uh, don't do anything hasty, try and improve the tech in focused ways and be flexible to uh, what the what future yields or something like that.
0: Yeah, I th- and I think I agree, and I think being humble about the veracity or validity of your own assumptions is also very important because who knows, like we were talking about earlier, you know, whether this could be bootstrapped kind of no matter what comes at it or what mistakes are made, which may be the case, but it also may not be, you know, it, it may be the case that we get one crack at this and we just don't realize uh, how we how we would undo or or kind of fail at that crack. So you know, being extremely careful, methodical, and humble with how we approach it, I think is probably you know a safe way to yeah. go.
1: well, I do agree with the one crack at it argument, which is um, you know was why I was not keen on altcoins. like you know for as soon as I got more actively involved in was contacted by people creating altcoins trying to recruit you to join that altcoin. And it didn't take me more than like, you know, 15 seconds to think, well, oh, wait a minute, this is, this is not a good direction. And like, one of the arguments is that is what you said, which is that um, if you, you know, if, if a given coin overtakes Bitcoin for some silly reason, you know, like a fad, uh, then it could probably, it would probably permanently destroy the store of value concept because there would be no rational reason why that wouldn't happen again. In which case, it's not a store of value, it's more like a string of speculations, right? And that is that's a very difficult thing to, to you know. You have to actively manage that, it's very risky, and that's the experience in the altcoin space, right? You know, there's a long tail of altcoins that kind of, you know, sink from relevance and lose value. So I think you don't, you don't want it to happen. And I think that is, I mean, I don't think it's a very realistic threat because I think a lot of people have through various arguments, uh, you know, various internal thinking and discussion have arrived at, you know, it's, it's more productive to have one store of value and that there's something different about Bitcoin compared to other coins. That there's, um, you know, a lot of inertia that would retain that now, but I think that, you know, that was a conceptual rationale for not even contemplating it. That it would be, you know, Bitcoin is such a valuable thing for society that, you know, putting it in jeopardy to, you know, make some um, speculative money, you know, apart from the ethics of, you know, spinning up coins and taking pre mined money from naive investors, which, which I also don't like, but I mean, people are fall down in different places on that. But I think the the fact that it could put into jeopardy Bitcoin itself as a, as a societal concept, like dist- destroy that is like that's uh, such a bad outcome that I think it's worth putting a lot of effort into avoiding that outcome. Yeah.
0: And I, I think the the same attitude that would take the traditional, let's say tech approach of like, Yes, change, optimize, you know, blah, blah, move fast and break things sort of thing, even though I know that's not generally applied to Bitcoin, but there's an element of that mentality. Um, You know, a lot of people that because we were talking about where it is, how Bitcoin is kind of pristinely valued through pure subjective assessment of its attributes and what it permits. And, you know, when people when new people come into the space or even people that have been around a long time. They are subjectively valuing the options that are available to them. And perhaps they look at one system and say, Hey, those transactions are faster. They're cheaper. Like, why isn't that more valuable for, for my needs? And like, I I think people that understand Bitcoin and in particular how Bitcoin emerged and it's kind of order of events and it's, it's path dependency kind of understand why it's created certain moats or network effects as a result of that. But you, you know, you can appreciate or empathize with the mentality that is, perhaps, focusing too much on certain attributes, when they're making their own valuations. And at the end of the day, I mean, all value being subjective kind of means that all value is just narrative, ultimately. And so I think, I guess we have to be cognizant of and careful with the, the narrative and the meaning of, of what we're uh, working on here and, and in Bitcoin, and how it relates to ones outside of it i don't know if that makes a ton of sense but yeah
1: i mean i have seen actually very uh, newcomers like or people that are not exposed to bitcoin or crypto at all uh, very quickly make some observations that are much truer and insightful than they maybe realize and like everybody could learn from which is you know all the newcomers who end up getting a detour into all coins before realizing that uh, that's not going anywhere and that is that you know, they'll, they'll say, because there's this whole sequence of, you know, what about this? What about that? People go through it, right? And so one of us is like, well, you say it's scarce and there's only 21 million coins, but there's an infinite number of altcoins. How is that scarce? And you're like, you are completely correct. <laughs> and that is why we Bitcoin, right? Because there needs to be scarcity or none of this works, mm-hmm. And Bitcoin is the first and has the highest network effect and the most, you know, conviction from its investors. And so it's a natural shelling points will fulfill that function. And so you're correct, that's that's the only thing that's really, you know, defensively scarce and everything else is not. And while you could say there's something arbitrary about it, like, oh, it was first and it was 21 million versus 42 million or halving every four years versus every five years, that aside, the fact, the historical fact can't be changed, and the kind of virgin birth, right? Where there was no pre mine, nobody had you know uh, a different level of understanding about what's happening or insider marketing or anything like that, right? So it can't be like basically the Bitcoin experiment can't be repeated, is what I'm getting at. And so, that being the case, here we are, Bitcoin exists and the others can't really you know if, if you go down that path there is no digital scarcity and it all ends so as exactly. we want the societal benefit of digital scarcity i guess we use bitcoin right because that's all there is
0: right and and the the mind trip about that is that ultimately it's a choice yes you're economically incentivized and yes you can construct the rational argument based on its how it emerged and its virgin birth and the, how it was the first and no one was paying attention and all that kind of stuff but Still, ultimately, what you just described is a choice to say, it's this one, not all those ones. And, you know, a lot of people, especially people that first come into the space, like you said, are uncomfortable with that because they've been sold like this thing is this immutable, unchanging, you know, thing that's going to coordinate all economic activity on earth, you know, for the rest of time, ostensibly, or whatever it is. And then they are confronted with the, the element of choice involved in that equation. And that makes them uncomfortable, right? Because choice can be transient. Choice can be, you know, and this is kind of what squeaks in the door of like an, an element of faith in this whole dynamic. It's like you're, you're, you're choosing this narrative, you're choosing to impose kind of that arbitrary limitation we've been discussing on this thing because you, you recognize the value of doing so. And even though it has all of this other stuff to help maintain that, but there is that little element of it hanging yeah. in the wings.
1: But I mean, you can, you can combat that as well with some um, sort of ab initio thinking like a, a thought experiment to say, well, you know, here is Bob, somebody who just got involved in Bitcoin and he doesn't have any Bitcoin and he thinks, boy, wouldn't it be nice if I had all the coins? So he starts Bobcoin and, you know, nobody. So, so what stops him, right? Well, he could do that, but nobody's going to value it. And if he does it, and if he were successful, then Alice and, you know, Charlie and everybody would do it. And there'll be no value because, you know, if everybody has their own coin, no coins have value. And so, you know, then you can extend that and say, well, what if Alice and Bob and Charlie get together and they make their coin that they share between them and they share it out, you know, they pre-mine it and they share it out between them. Nothing really changed, you know, it's, they're still like, thousands or millions of groups of people that could do that and it all ends in no value no interoperability no maintenance resources so i think um while it's a tempting kind of narrative that promoters of that are trying to sell coins might use that ultimately it it falls on its face under scrutiny i would say um yeah
0: i i agree but I think it takes a relatively high degree of sophistication to realize that. And I guess the hope for Bitcoiners among us is that not everyone who engages with Bitcoin, in fact, a minority wouldn't have to because the economic incentives would be so obvious and, uh, and powerful in and of themselves that they wouldn't necessarily have to kind of understand the psychological or philosophical or broader scope of, of what actually makes it unique and, you know, versus all the other ones. And I think that is the case, you know, which is why those of us who have these conversations are is the minority, right? Most people that buy Bitcoin do so because they're playing to their incentives. And I guess the hope is and perhaps even why we have these conversations is to make sure that we we maintain the attributes that permits Bitcoin to have those incentives that allow people to automatically adopt it absent having to have these these sort of more sophisticated understandings?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the um, people sort of often learn from their environment or the thinking of groups of other people or the general attitude and understanding of other people. So it's very fascinating to watch some really early so there's a Twitter handle was documenting BTC, and they went through a phase of posting some really early, early uh, TV segments with somebody talking about Bitcoin, and you know trying to explain it to the host and the host asking you know kind of naive questions, and you know the the tone is like completely changed from nowadays. So, and I think that's because it was such an incredulous thing to the interviewer, you know, that you have an electronic money. It's mind on the internet It was almost whimsical and like a joke. And the, sure. you know, the person participating in the interview is sort of apologetically saying, well, you know, it might work and trying to draw analogies and uh, we'll see. And, you know, it's like very apologetic for and defensive. And now it's like almost the other way around, right? Which is that newcomers kind of want to portray that they know more than they do. They don't want to put their foot in their mouth and say something silly. And if you don't get it, you feel silly. So it's <laughs> sort of, it's, it's, it's changed around. And I think that's because, you know, people don't understand like the, there's so much technology layers in the world. Like people don't understand, you know, electronics and protocols and cryptography and you know how the internals of a car or a smartphone work, or money, or like big systems. You know, like not everybody can understand all that stuff because there's so much detail. And so, a lot of things are taken on trust based on, uh, you know, how other people act around them. Like everybody takes something seriously. That's the one. That's digital gold. It's a new form of money. And, and I think people arrive at simplified and more. Uh, and sort of narrative explanations that are more convicted, right? That, you know, this is just a fact. And there's so many people walking around that have got this like very factual attitude that it's contagious. And, you know, now newcomers interact and like they're the newcomer in a space and everybody has got a very clear picture in their mind about how something works and how it all works and fits together and simplified way, much clearer and simpler ways to explain it. I think it takes people a long time to arrive at those explanations. So, and build a confidence that, you know, this is right. This is going to, this is going to do it. Uh, So I think that's, you know, that maybe helps. So, you know, if that continues, um, I mean, I think presumably that has to continue for Bitcoin to reach, you know, overtake gold parity, and start to compete with, um, the monetary use cases for real estate, which is, you know, I mean, it's, it's eating into the utility purposes because there are people that can't afford reasonable quality housing because there's a lot of monetary use of real estate that's actually unoccupied and things like that. Right. So Mm -hmm. that's actually inefficient for society and, you know, people are just looking for a store of value. They're not necessarily looking to, you know, store value in property that they're not directly using. So. I think the, you know, gold as a monetary technology presumably was confusing at one point in time or, you know, that, that hypothetically this could store value. So I think for, for Bitcoin to reach new levels of displacement of other monetary tech like real estate and bonds, um, gold and the monetization of the stock market as well. I mean, that's been growing at the rate of M2 expansion or something. Mm. Um, it's it's going to have to be understood and explained in more convincing ways over time, I think, So that it's kind of universal assumption that people learn as an infant, right, or something. Yeah. Um,
0: well, this is the, I guess this is always the danger, and I, maybe culture is a good corollary. People. Because culture informs you in mostly subconscious ways, you know, the, the norms and the MO, how to act to maneuver through it optimally, right? So you don't have to consciously be aware of all the rules of the game. They're just instilled in you. And that allows you to affect your, to, to express your will in that game more optimally and to focus on the things that you can control. But, simultaneous to or or, or let's say the downside of that is not being necessarily conscious of the rules you're playing by and why they're valid rules in the first place and you know i agree with everything you said about how bitcoin will kind of suck in or remove the monetary premium from all assets in the world that have developed a monetary premium and as a result made broadly speaking the world more expensive for people so i think it's going to be a tremendous boon if that actually ends up playing out because everything will be less expensive and that's that's a good thing um but i wonder to what degree uh that process will bitcoin might become a victim of its own success and by that i mean all these people that now come in and i agree with you right like it's when people come in now there's almost like a social pressure to to get it and, and, you know, kind of raise the flag for maximalism in a way, or, you know, and, and to, to not really, not really uh, rock the boat that much. And ultimately, like, obviously I agree with that approach, but I think it is important to know why you hold it. And if the adoption occurs so quickly and at such a large scale and people continually opt in in that manner, then we may at some point in the future, when, when Bitcoin is much larger than it is today, have a large cohort of people that maybe aren't sensitive to the conversation we've been having over the last hour about how should we approach our relationship with this thing in terms of how we change it and how we try to optimize it. Because if they, if they just came in and kind of were, were subject to and responded to the pressure to agree with the, the current narrative, and then that cohort becomes so large that relatively speaking that the group of people that understand why it is the way it is is relatively small at what point it, you know do you become subject to the relative incompetence is a bit of a harsh word but you'll know what i mean of the majority of people that have adopted this thing on a former narrative and therefore don't not a former a former narrative but also a a more narrow narrative and therefore may contribute to uh, influencing it in ways that aren't necessarily beneficial or positive.
1: Yeah, I mean, people draw analogies to uh, internet adoption. And there's this phrase, the eternal September, I think that's when, you know, a new cohort of students would arrive at university and get their first access to the internet. And the eternal September, you've got like massive inflows of new users. And then, you know, um, wider society getting online that at any given point in time, you know, 90% of the users want their there three months before or something like so it's such a rapid adoption phase that, you know, any, any kind of cultural understandings that people built up about reasonable ways to, to operate online, netiquette, things like that kind of diluted to uh, like lost or diluted. Right. Um, and I think one thing that helps Bitcoin a bit in that regard is, well, maybe a couple of things, but one thing is that the earlier adopters on average have more economic influence. So they you know, the way they vote in a market has more weight and they tend to be more convicted. So I think even if you have, you know, a thousand dollar or ten thousand dollar market vote, But if you're indecisive and you don't really know what's going on, you're just gonna sit on the sidelines and not affect things. So the people that have a conviction that they know what's going on, they they have a view about what's the right thing and what they're willing to put their money on the line for are the people with uh, earlier understanding typically. So that that kind of protects things a bit. And I think there's also some uh, systemic effects where maybe just the whole thing is geared to resist change you know, I mean, people build an incentive to not want to erode the value of their own money. And Bitcoin is, uh, because of the verifiability, it's a sort of machine for preventing change, right? You need you need to coordinate all of the people that are verifying to accept a non-compatible change. And the more often, the more chaotic that gets. So you now, of course, the proportion of people that run a full node or rely on a technically sophisticated service provider to run a full node and do it in a, in a sensible way it may shrink over time but it's still you know it's still not an easy thing to change because there's i think there's definitely an incentive to not split the network basically and that that's you know that's something easier to to grasp And there's like historical precedents. Um, And it's also like an analogy for monetary debasement or something, right? So people, if, I think if people are, you know, have a shared interest to use something, you know, like we'll say that Bitcoin is, you know, not, it's uh, not a social network enemies can transact. So, you know, there, there has to be a showing point of something that has to continue working. And that can persist through all kinds of, you know, diverse viewpoints of people participating on it who may not see to eye to eye on anything much, but are perfectly happy to have a reliable digital money, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so hopefully, but I mean, you know, uh, we certainly don't want to screw it up for the like kind of one-shot <laughs> argument. So it's it's definitely worth looking at how things are evolving and. You know, as, as people educate and explaining or building bits of technology infrastructure, I think it's, you know, arguably our self-interested responsibility to try and build things and explain things so that it steers away from risky outcomes. I mean, I think the, you know, the, uh, the ETF outcome, is is not you know is potentially risky right if, if too much bitcoin ends up in an the ETF then the ETF fund manager has a nominal I mean may take the view that they have a fiduciary responsibility to make a change mm. that the investors don't want. And so you know typically there are investor rights and the investors can do something about it like they can make a withdrawal from that ETF and put it in another one or take the coins out and hold them directly while something's going on but it's still a dramatic, like a potential to create a dramatic uh, situation. So I think like what, what we can do is, you know, I mean, individually try and hold coins directly uh, or use architectures that um, mean that you can rely on the security service of a custodian but have one of the keys yourself, like a kind of multi-sig arrangement and those kind of things are possible. I think there's still, you know, even though there is multi-sig, I think there's a lot of room for that to become easier to use uh, for less technical people and have a multi-sig where a security provider, or it might it might feel like a bank or a broker or a custodian, you know, they're protecting you from losing your keys, but you have to co-sign any changes and transactions and things like that, right? And so if if things are architected like that, I think that could be perfectly uh, usable. You know, there are lots of banking applications that have two-factor authentication and apps to approve things. So it, it could be it could feel like that, but actually be a second signature on the on the thing and, and also protect you from you know IT backup failure, which, which is very difficult for the average person. Using time locks, right? So if you if you really lose all the keys, then you know after some months, then the service provider can, uh, you know, get single keys and give you new keys or something like that.
0: I think to extend the uh, analogy with culture, I mean culture is behavior, behavior is informed by norms, traditions, rituals, etc. I believe there's a genuine culture emerging on top of Bitcoin, and I think an element of perhaps mitigating that risk of as it grows losing some of the important uh, attributes that help to maintain what it is is these kind of like uh, rituals whether it's like you know how you store your own seed or what your multi-signature setup is or you know uh mottos or sayings like not your keys not your coins yes you know the the kind of sometimes abrasive approach of of maximalists to a new entrance in the space where they say look I'm doing you a favor. Don't think about anything else. Just, you know, DCA into Bitcoin and start your education and you'll get it eventually. Right. Trying to help kind of uh, those people act as though they've learned the hard mistakes of the past before they do so, so that they can, you know, they can have the proper order of events where they can in, in a in a series, you know, in a timeline where time is such a uh, consequential variable. Get, you know, make the right decision early and then almost understand why you made it. And these, these, uh, all these different activity, these, uh, ethos and sayings and rituals by people in the space is, I think, trying to, uh, help newcomers with those things and mitigate some of the, the, the damage, the victim of success that I was referring to earlier.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that, you know, there is a phenomenon of reversion to mean, which you have to be conscious of in sort of technology cycles. So I think for example, PayPal, so so by which I mean that, you know, a system starts as a innovation to reform something and it ends up being the thing it was trying to replace or worse. And, yeah. you know, you see like PayPal is an example of that, it started out as uh, bearer electronic cash on uh, PDAs, like uh, smartphone kind of precursor things. Um, and then it became increasingly more bank-like. And now it's policies of, you know, oh, your account is frozen for six months because, well, we won't tell you why. right uh, is, is almost worse than banks at times. I mean, banks can be pretty bad too. But, you know, it, it's become so bank-like that did it really change it that much? I and mean, maybe it's easier to get a PayPal account than a bank account, probably. But that's but it's effectively a bank or something to a, to a lot of extent. So we don't, you know, you don't want to lose the differentiated value of Bitcoin, which I think is permissionlessness. And if it's too too much control by custodians, then there's a risk. Um, sure. And and of course, it's you know, it's fine if. If, a, if some reasonable portion is in different things, that's fine. Because, you know, some people are not directly users. So they're more like somebody who is, because this isn't a great analogy, but, you know, somebody that wasn't very much sure about the internet, but thought other people seemed excited, so bought some internet stocks, right? So you don't necessarily need to be have a day-to-day use for transacting in Bitcoin in order to want to buy Bitcoin, because you see the potential for you know countries with less mature banking services or people who need you know are more are more likely to get censored in their jurisdiction or with their you know political views or, or what have you right so those people if they're just if they're just using it apolitically and trying to sort of buy a share in this future Maybe it doesn't matter so much if they put it into an ETF or something like that or like in, in either some share trading platforms that offer you Bitcoin exposure now. Um, but I think you don't want too much of it. You want like enough of it that convicted activist investors can take a stand in, in the market in a, with physical ownership and, and enough choices of creating venues internationally that they can you know either in a decentralized trading platform or on on trading platforms that, I mean, generally trading platforms are incentivized to let people vote in both directions in in a market term, right? So usually there will be competing venues that will, uh, you know, let you uh, trade against somebody with opposing views. Yeah. Even though the exchange owners and operators might you know, be neutral or have views on one side or the other. Their incentive is to let the trade happen and let the market let price discovery happen. So, I think that's there's good. There must. I mean, it's not precise science, but there should be some. Um, you know, enough full nodes, enough private key ownership, enough activist investors, not too much, ETF, fiduciary thinking, that kind of thing. So, that, that's yeah, a risk I think. Point.
0: I think one of the, the great benefits of how Bitcoin emerged on the world and the, what it represented and the ideologies that it pulled on in its early adopters, because, you know, I think of ETFs as white label Bitcoin that effectively neuters them. You get price exposure, but you don't get any of the other benefits of, of Bitcoin. Um, but what it does do is it pumps the bags of, you know, the people that are ideologically convicted, right, like the early adopters and, you know, perhaps the additional influence that that permits those people counterbalances you know, the risks of, of the centralized, centralized tendency of, of these white label products and institutions and stuff. But you know, talking about culture, like what Bitcoin is and the culture that emerges around it, I'd love to know, um, we talked a little bit about your history. So we're going back on the timeline a bit, but when you first encountered Bitcoin, what was your impression of what it was? And I know that might be a little bit of a broad question, but how has that evolved over time? Because I think all of us that are you know, basically crazy Bitcoiners, every day it's almost like there's epiphanies about what this thing is and what the implications are and what it means. So I'd love to know how your understanding uh, or perspective has evolved on that. And then also simultaneously, because you've been around for so long, What is your impression about the impact of this thing on people and how that how that turns into a culture? Because I spend a lot of time on this podcast talking with people about how after learning about Bitcoin, adopting Bitcoin, uh, how they've how they've experienced pretty profound life changes. Right. Like their their hope for the future has changed. Their time preference has changed their approach to their health, relationships, education, ambition, career have all been reoriented as, as a result of exposure to this thing. And that's a really phenomenal sort of phenomenon, you know, that's a that's an unexpected right. sort of thing just for this internet money. So I'd love to, you know, because you've observed so much of it, I'd love to get your perspective on both of those things.
1: Yeah, I mean, when I first heard about it, it was like the email from Satoshi and so I got a better picture of how it worked. By reading Hal Finney's uh, experiment write-ups in January two thousand nine, and so you know having been involved in these attempts to bootstrap electronic cash, and like thinking about protocols and how how you might be able to do that, it uh, you know it it was cool that somebody had found a way to put it together. So that was a, a step forward. And then I had like you know two doubts following that. One is well, that's cool, but, you know, like, there's no market, there's no users, will it bootstrap, right? And so, you know, in hindsight, you'd say, well, I should have seen the potential of that because I participated in the digital, you know, the experimental kind of rogue use of Digicash demo server to try and bootstrap it, right? So, like, if a bunch of people did that for fun, um, like, that could happen with Bitcoin too. And I think the other thing that occurred to me is that, it's not very, like it's very um, public and transparent and not very private. And there's a related concept of uh, cryptographic fungibility. And uh, so David Chom's protocol and Stefan and some like the, the general idealized electronic cash protocol requirements that, you know, anybody developing an incrementally improved electronic cash protocol and applied crypto space and writing a paper or a sample implementation would would kind of get laughed out of the room if they didn't meet some of these requirements. And the requirements are that you know it's private, so the the central server that everybody's supposed to trust um, can't link coins. You know, you can I can I can withdraw a coin, I can transfer it to you, you can deposit, and the central server can't tell that was the same coin or the same value and things like that, right? So. So those are the assumptions, but you notice there's a trick in there, which is there's like a, an elephant in the room, which is like this trust model where you have to trust the central server because they have a blind spot for that over in academia. Back in, you know, 2009, that was just like accepted as the way things work. And um, so I saw that a lot of the academics had a hard time with it. because they're like, well, you know, the privacy is really bad and, the security, because they're just measuring against these idealized requirements, right? And and so I had like some of this in my thoughts because I, I worked on some of those protocols. And, you know, the, the privacy is not so good. And the, you know, the possibility to roll back and take coins or double spend coins due to a rollback is protected by proof of work, which is an economic argument where the attacker and the defender are matched, right? Whereas with the electronic cache systems, if you accepted this elephant in the room that you trust the central server, which is kind of a bogus assumption anyway, then you wouldn't be able to steal coin. There'd be an enormous asymmetry between the attacker and the defender. You know, the defender could just have, you know, a 256 bit key and just laugh in the face of anybody who tried to take it and, you know, it'd be hopeless, right? So, So going from some enormous, like, you know, you can do your computation for the next million years and you won't be able to take this coin with today's hardware to, well, it's just a, you know, a battle of, of computing power between the forces that try trying to steal coins and the forces that are trying to transact with it normally. That took a bit of getting used to for people because right. it felt it doesn't have the asymmetry that people expect from asymmetric or public key cryptography. But, you know, on, on the other hand, it solved the problem, like it, it provided a decentralized solution. It solved the, I mean, it, it solved for the supply and let the market choose the price, which was an insight missing before. And it's decentralized. And the previous centralized system, like DigiCash, uh, failed due to its centralization. So you know, people were trying to find decentralized Solutions because of that, like informed by that, but he didn't find a solution. So, you know, so while people would say that, well, you know, the the privacy isn't ideal, and the asymmetry between the attacker and the defender is not as is, is not very robust. well, You know, there's not a big a big gap, like an exponential gap. On the other hand, it it was deployable, um, uh, kind of. What is it, like survivable? You know, like any any individual player could leave or join, and it w- it would continue like as a a kind of uh, organic thing that would just keep running forever, right? You know, any any individual company could leave. So, you know, Digital Cash can bankrupt in a Bitcoin space. It doesn't. You know, nobody would notice. It doesn't matter. Um, and so, that that was very powerful. So. That that was my initial thought, you know, like about that. And then there was another, there was an earlier protocol which um, was potentially usable in a decentralized way, which is a 1999 paper called Auditable Anonymous Electronic Cash that didn't have a private key. It kind of had like a public broadcast or place where spent coins were stored and some zero knowledge proofs. And so I thought, well, that protocol. which which was quite an interesting and unique protocol could have been used by Bitcoin and now would have had more privacy, a lot more privacy. But so that was my thought. Well, you know, why didn't Bitcoin you know, socially should have used that? But in fairness, that protocol was like kind of esoteric and the coins are quite large, like, you know, tens of kilobytes and it's more computationally expensive to, you know, spend and verify coins and things. So those would be reasons against, And actually that protocol is, um, other people eventually came to think about that same protocol and like uh, ZeroCoin coin and Zcash are uh, like optimizations of that paper. So that was my early thoughts. And then like, will it bootstrap? And then, you know, basically, oh, wow. It seems to be bootstrapping, I guess. And I was like busy with, uh, you know, another startup I was in, Um, but you know, then you know, 2013, I got more actively involved and, um, you know, start, started to learn some more about it. Cause some of the features of Bitcoin are not described in the paper, like smart contracts, for example. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, and then, you know, I think it takes people a while to understand the uh, game theory that we described about the forks, you know, how the miners actually have less influence than people think they do. So I think a lot of people start with the assumption that miners are kind of running the network and there are lots of them and it's decentralized. So that's okay. But actually they don't like due to some more subtle economic game theory, they are, you know, service providers that have to do what the market wants them to do or they get fired basically, or, or their work is ignored if it's not, you know, it's like, it's like the, uh, actually the, um, What is it? Labor theory of value fallacy, right? I think that that's the which which traps a lot of people, even outside of crypto, right? The labor Mm. labor theory of value. So, so I think it's that misthinking that leads people to assume. You know, maybe don't recognize it, but I think that's why they assume that miners control things because ultimately, you know, if if a gold miner decides to mine lead one day, it doesn't mean that lead is valuable, right? It just means that people will stop buying from that gold miner and buy from a different one. and that's ultimately what happened in the in a fork drama, but you know those things are uh, more complicated and so and It definitely adds confidence when the market agrees that that's the outcome. <laughs> um, yeah,
0: and the the other part of that question, because you know because the, the last uh, little part of this uh, discussion. I want to talk about blockstream but just to kind of put a cap on this one having been in the space for as long as you have what has been your impression about watching people come in watching a culture coalesce and emerge around this thing like i'd love to just hear general thoughts about that or have you um, have you been changed by it actually is almost a more interesting you know well, I, I i described how so many people report that how have you changed personally as a result of being involved in this
1: Yeah, coincidentally, there's a pretty old email post of mine on the Cypherpunks list where I'm espousing, I mean, I don't use the terminology, but basically espousing long time preference thinking and like investing for the future. uh, Don't spend, don't do high time preference things. I don't spend a lot of money now. And just talking about that kind of idea about how to organize your finances and your focus. And so in some ways I was already in that mindset and I'd arrived at that mindset by, I mean, I was already interested in, you know, saving and investing and like compound interests, the concept that if you do, if you can, if you focus on reinvesting and you do it for a long time, that that will pay off in a much bigger way than is intuitive. So I, I was interested in that. And then I did some, uh, share trading kind of day trading Um, you know some uh, like research I wasn't just buying random tickers but I wasn't like a super sophisticated investor either right so I was like doing a lot of trades and this is in I guess the late 90s so the the market was on a tear so it basically you know a monkey could have made money like mm. hitting on a typewriter with random tickers so you know when the market turned I ended up holding a A bag of stuff that was underwater so it kind of persuaded me that of the you know of the uh, value investing thesis rather than the speculative investing thesis so you know I eventually and I I was not inclined to realize the loss either right so I was kind of like I'm going to wait for hold it all the way down hold it so I already had the holding like don't realize losses and then also in hindsight don't buy things you don't have confidence in the long-term value of like the value investor so, you know, when I got involved with Bitcoin, it didn't take me long to want to apply that logic to it, right? So, well, if, if you have a value thesis for this, you should buy it and keep buying more of it as you can afford to and don't get shaken out. Like if, you know, the investment thesis that if a price goes down and you're a value investor, you should be pleased and buy more, right? Where a lot of people, just human psychology... And so, so going through that day trading experience and the bear market, like the stock market, bear market kind of taught me that lesson beforehand, where I think a lot of people learn that lesson during a Bitcoin cycle, right? And, uh, it it, it does take a lot of people a while to learn the, uh, huddle story, right? You know, the, uh, the drunken rant on, uh bitcoin talk about the guy who realized that day trading is a bad idea and he's just going to hold so well that's what's so
0: funny that's what's so funny about the the culture and and when you see people first come in right like bitcoin will lose 50 percent of its value and you have all these laser-eyed people on twitter saying what is this a dip for ants ha 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 you know it's such an unusual attitude
1: yeah well i mean i think that part of the the um I mean, it, people have said this in, in stock investment theory too, probably Warren Buffett or other investors, that you want, for a company, you want good investors, like people who think that your company has long-term value. Mm. So they will hold it if it pulls, you know, if if you're affected by short-term market effects or just, you know, market randomness. Um, it's the same for Bitcoin. Like Bitcoin benefits from value investors more. You know, the volatility is created by... Speculators and people who don't have the stomach for volatility, who get themselves in too deep, and you know another thing about so that that's one kind of investor that can leave the market when they should hold. Arguably, you I know mean, if you can't if you assume you can't time the market, then the other um, kind of thing that exacerbates volatility is people who get you know they start dabbling with higher risk trading strategies like leverage, right? And then, you know, there's another market saying that, you know, leverage can turn a good trade bad, but not make a bad trade good, which is meaning that you can be holding a position and you're making the right bet in a value thesis terms, but you're forced to sell it to, you know, downside the risk or you're liquidated. either you're avoiding liquidation that that could be more painful later or you're liquidated on on this position size. And so, you know, you're forced to make a trade that you didn't want to make. And so Mm. I think there's a lesson there, like, well, either either don't use leverage or if you must, you know, if you want to play with that stuff, cold store most of your coins and do it with a small percentage so that if it goes horribly wrong, you won't be, you know, wiped out and feel bad about the outcome uh, and learn something from it right you don't want to learn with you don't want to do high trade high risk trading strategies with all your eggs in one basket anyway right and you know high risk these, these things are unless it's huddling bitcoin yeah well i mean that's that's a curious fact right because as such bitcoin itself you know it doesn't is, seem
0: very high risk to us
1: well i mean like if it probably felt higher risk you know five years ago or more right sure, sure. And, and rightly uh, or eight years ago or what have you but somehow uh, at least for me I got I pretty soon got into the well I don't have enough Bitcoin I must buy more kind of uh, thinking and, and there was a correction at one point where... You know it it got back to levels people thought it would never get back to again and of course you know that that your your um psychology is going to tell you to be scared and not buy it right because it might go further but that like when that is the time to buy <laughs> mm. and so you know if you if you've been through enough other market cycles and you've got a value investment viewpoint and you're not leveraged you can do that and those are usually the more profitable trades. So I don't know. There's still a lot of leverage in these markets. I think it got deleveraged quite a bit. Uh, the COVID start, you know, big deleverage. And there's not that much long leverage at the moment, r- relatively speaking, but there's still some short leverage. So I don't know. Like I, I'd say, it seems like the there are uh, people accumulating Bitcoin, like buying on the spot markets and a few people. Leverage short, but not that many leverage long. That's what it feels like at the moment. But mm-hmm. um, I think there is more. You know, as 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 more people get accustomed to, you know, not getting shaken out, to accumulating and reacting to pullbacks and learning from it. Because I think you don't really appreciate something until you live through it yeah. a couple of times. That you know, you get new holders basically. And that, that defends. So anyway, I mean, it's kind of, you know, these these are kind of micro economic trading effects of individual human psychology, but the end result is, you know, an investment class of people looking to monetize Bitcoin and sucking monetary premium out of other, other things by their economic decisions to, you know, take money out of other asset classes and put it into Bitcoin. I think people forget that each economic action has a foregone alternative. So that has two effects.
0: Mm -hmm. You know, the the contradiction, uh, the contradictory way that I describe Bitcoin to some people, you know, and the seeming paradox around it is like, I I think Bitcoin is, the most conservative asset you can hold because of its lack of counterparty risk, because of its lack of inflation, because of all the different attributes that we value in it. but because of its stage in its adoption cycle and distribution on the world, it simultaneously represents one of you know the, the greatest upside returns you could hope for, which puts it in the class of the highly speculative, highly risky category typically speaking you know so you have this, You know contradictory polarity where you're in one hand saying there's no more conservative safe you know autonomous asset you could ever hope for and there's also few things that represent an equal or more reliable upside than this thing and you know when you're talking with quote unquote normies it's hard for them to square those two you know and and hence the misunderstanding of bitcoin and hence the volatility you were referring to where these it's, it's playing out in real time, how people value this and their understanding of it and that kind of thing, you know,
1: um, yeah. I want to yeah. go ahead. Oh uh, yeah. I was going to say like the, what, what you said about the sort of ratio of, um, historic return to volatility is, is like formally the sharp ratio, like the volatility versus return ratio. And, um, so on that basis, Bitcoin is statistically a you know an outlier, like a, a great investment because yes, it has high volatility historically, but it has a return that far outweighs that. And so, but you know, that that's a kind of professional investor concept that a lot of people are not gonna know about, and or portfolio management concept, right? So, you know, in principle. If you, if you can't stand that volatility and like realistically, a lot of people don't want to think about that level of volatility. um, Then the logical thing to do would be to, you know, buy an allocation because, you know, like a 5% allocation or a 10% allocation, it's not going to wipe you out. If that falls 80%, it's it's only going to make an 8% difference. And if the rest of your investment in like real estate or, property, I mean, stocks or whatever you're doing is making no return or a loss or not a real return, like only a return due to M2 monetary expansion, then the Bitcoin component may be, end up being the lion's share of the return on your portfolio, even though it's only 10% of the makeup of it because of the characteristics and it makes sense to put these things together if you don't have to risk appetite to go, you know, to go super heavily into Bitcoin. But that, you know, the concept of constructing a portfolio out of uh, high sharp ratio things and, and lower things is is not what's on people's minds. So mm. they will, you know, be attracted to the highest upside thing and then buy more of it than they can stomach the volatility for and like mm. up you know, upset the apple cart. So yeah, yeah maybe there's room for um, like a structured product that you know, you put us dollars into and it, it hedges things somehow, right. It buys a Bitcoin allocation and it, it uses yield on the dollars to provide some downside protection. So kind of like, I mean, like a structured product, those things are often constructed by, you know, putting a three year product together. Uh, where let's say 80% of the money is put into a bond that will rebuild to 100% to provide the capital protection. And then the 20% is put into some more risky thing like leveraged options or something. So
0: basically doing the the risk management for you. You're lazy or you don't have the expertise or whatever. Right. So
1: I mean, if somebody gives you the proposition that, look, here's a product that will, you know, you'll either get your money back or you'll get, you know, 25% of Bitcoin's upside, like, you know, however, however that works out when you do the sums. Um, that's like a proposition that people can get behind because like, well, I get my money back, like what could go wrong, right? <laughs> so, and of course, those things are hard to achieve today because the they're usually built from like zero coupon bonds or very low risk. <clears throat> I think to call themselves a, you know, a capital protected product, they need to use a certain tier of, you um, rating on the, on the yield product um, and, and the yields are very low. So it's very hard to do right now, you, you know, you have to put like 98% of the money there to get hundred percent back after three years or whatever the going like, like right. low risk yield is, but you know, there are, there are higher, higher yield crypto. So, it, I mean, higher yield on margin funding in the crypto space because of, I don't know, misunderstanding about risk or, or rules about risk, maybe outside of, you know, in conventional finance. So in any case, like something like that, and there are a few different things you could construct, I think could be uh, useful uh, because some people could, could buy it and hold it who might get shaken out by direct exposure.
0: I feel like this is a wink, wink, nudge, nudge sort of conversation that we've moved into with what you guys yeah. are, are doing at Blockstream. But I, And I know we're short on time and I want to talk about Blockstream a, a bunch, but just I want, to, I want to drill down on this because I am just generally curious about it. Like, and you don't have to spend much time on it, but like your impression of of the culture that's emerged around Bitcoin. Like, just what are your what is your impression of that? Clearly, something's going on. You know, yeah. Were well, you at, were you at Bitcoin
1: 2021 in Miami? Uh, no, I wasn't. But it was huge, right? I mean, there was so many people. Massive,
0: and yeah. Next year, I think their capacity is 35,000 people. Hmm. Like, there's something in the air. You know, there's something going on. I just would love to get your take on it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, in in earlier years, you know, maybe five years ago or so, it it was a smaller space and, you know, the participants were, you know, maybe uh, some technical people, some early investors, um, some people are philosophically interested. Um, Well, I guess there wasn't that much education explaining or documentation. It was harder to get started, but now it's become sort of more widely promulgated so more people will know about bitcoin it's been explained better and you probably got more kind of narratives or shortcut explanations and also some you know cultural learnings that are kind of promoted via mantras or things right you know like run your own node Not your keys, not your coins. I mean, those those are hard won learnings from you know exactly. previous issues, right? Um, so it is kind of curious. And of course, you know, there's there's always like you know people who are loud or rude or get into argument. I mean, like social media is like basically designed for arguments. Like it's probably <laughs> just like a bad format for anything. But so I don't really feel it's anything more than that. But it is fascinating seeing you know wider social concepts arising around adoption and stuff
0: um all right Blockstream. the the thing that strikes me about Blockstream is just how many things you guys are doing uh, and how awesomely you're doing them for lack of a better term uh so you know i don't i don't know how to to break into this nut but just to say that like it's extremely impressive what you guys have done. I guess maybe this is a relevant question. Being that you do so much um, and you seem to do it of a very high quality, I'd be interested in knowing with, I guess, eternally limited resources, although I know you guys have raised money on a couple of occasions, which obviously grants more resources and human capital, et cetera. How do you prioritize the things that you decide to do, right? Like you you have a inexpensive hardware wallet that you now offer in jade right and you also have satellites that you know beam the you know beam uh, the blockchain down to nodes all around the world this sets up other opportunities like you, you know your recent mobile mining rigs you're obviously developing uh sea lightning like how do you determine the best place to uh emphasize and place your resources and then also on a operational level man how do you how do you manage your attention so well to, to, to push forward on so many kind of like innovative, monumental, you know, things, right. That are, that are great, you know, that are, haven't been done before, I guess, for, for lack of a better term.
1: Yeah. I mean, so as, as such, our kind of mission and plans haven't really changed since 2014. Um, And to our perspective, maybe with uh, a couple of detours I'll explain. Um, we build things that need to get built in order to get the job done. <laughs> so in other words, we we are, you know, liquid and lightning, they, they all sort of fit together as a layer two Bitcoin technology. And, you know, whenever we run into limitations or missed expectations that, you know, are, are we thought third party companies would, build software around that, but they don't, then we build it, right? And so it's it's kind of, you know, straight line reactive to achieving the mission outcome, which is like, you know, hyper-Bitcoinization via Bitcoin layer two, um, and even mining we, we had in our uh, 2014 pitch because we realized that Bitcoin mining needs to be reasonably decentralized to support, I mean, to increase the value permissionlessness of Bitcoin and to make layer twos that, you know, rely on Bitcoin mining for decentralization viable. So, I mean, they, they, they look like a lot of things, but if you, if you keep in mind a perspective that it's, it's a platform and, you know, third party developers and users and companies that, you know, issue assets, user technology, they need all the building blocks. Um, So our assumption is that if we just build, you know, one key part of it, like, you know, the library or the network, that it won't organically happen by itself, we have to build, you know, the the necessary minimum pieces for it to reach uh, takeoff energy. So for example, we built a block explorer. Now, Now that wasn't something, you know, we put on our roadmap at the beginning, but clearly you need a block explorer for Liquid because people expect block explorers are part of the workflow and so, You know, we built one of those, and I think I think it's like, maybe it's the only open source block explorer. But anyway, it's like a very scalable, fully open source block explorer, and you can run it yourself as well. You know, if you want, uh, like on your own computer or in the cloud. So, we end up doing things like that for for reactive reasons. Like, you know, there's a problem. Third party companies don't seem to build on top. I think most of the companies in the space are actually kind of more like, you know, service providers. They don't, they don't do a lot of heavy R&D or software development. So we ended up having to build, you know, a little more of the middleware and web integrations than we assumed at the beginning. You know, we, we thought that, well, people, that the other companies would have more kind of R&D div- uh, resources to build things. But, so we ended up building a few more of those. And then, you know, the more recent um, uh, buying uh, Turtemister's hedge fund admin capital, issuing the Blockstream mining notes, which is also a liquid, which which is a conventional security. You know, it's a Luxembourg securitization vehicle. Uh, so you have a security interest in the financial instrument, but also issuing uh, so rebooting the Adman hedge fund uh, main product, which is a, a Bitcoin yield product uh, with with hedge fund um, financial structure, you know, like a like a management fee plus 20% carry on the yield. So even though the actual strategy is like very conservative, um, it's just a like a framework to operate it in. So we end up doing that because we see the, you know, there are not that many interesting financial products that we would want to buy ourselves. Mm. So we're kind of, kind of like looking at it from the point of view of uh, if the world is going to become if if, if if hyper-Bitcoinization is going to come, they're going to need to be financial products and services that, you know, fulfill requirements and needs of, of Bitcoiners because, you know, everybody's going to be using it. And so when there are gaps there, we figure, well, I guess we have to build them. And if other people are not doing it, then maybe we will. And they they become also, you know, that's that's a a source of revenue. It's another asset class on liquid. It's another reason for people to integrate with or build on liquid. And you know, that the strategy of building missing pieces is really paying dividends in the sense that, you know, at this point, there are many startups building things on liquid you know, like applications and trading platforms and wallets and, you know, the exchanges with integrations, uh, you know, there's things like Sideswap, which is an Android and iOS application, which is technically a liquid wallet. It integrates peg-ins and peg-outs so you can move Bitcoin in and out of liquid and it integrates, um, a bulletin board. So kind of atomic, trustless uh, OTC transaction, but with reference to a a limit order. So users can enter limit orders. They they appear in a market, but the the marketplace is more peer-to-peer and there's no third-party custody. So things like that, just, you know, one day they appeared and we didn't know the people who built it. They built it. They seem to have, like, pretty deep internal knowledge about Bitcoin and liquid technology. So there have been multiple things like that, you know, during the last year or so. So that's been... Pretty cool, and that's that's what you want to get to as a platform developer is, is to see people appreciate what you've built, build things on top of it, and then also some of those companies using each other's products and services. So that's that's where you want to get to. And um, you know, mining, we didn't start with a concept of building our own miner, but we did start with a concept of doing some mining to decentralize it. And so, the reason we um, acquired Spondulius, which was part of the announcement of the recent fundraising is that if you are uh doing mining there's a shortage of miners and because of the commodity economics that that means that mining is more profitable than will be normal at this stage in the market because of shortage of asics and so you know the cost of mine a bitcoin is like five thousand dollars or less so that tends to flow through into, and a shortage of ASICs flows through into a higher, you know, higher margins on on buying miners and a shortage of miners. So really, it will help ourselves and potentially help the market to have another miner in market, and we could we can also, you know, diversify the supply chain. So you know, a lot of the supply chain and assembly is done in China, so we'll do it, you know, in other countries basically.
0: Yeah, I mean. I- that's awesome. And I guess the, the, the crux of my question was like, let's take, cause as you said, your vantage point from being in, in the industry for so long and, and kind of having your finger on the pulse of what people that hold Bitcoin, what they want and need, and, you know, all, all of that kind of thing, what the ecosystem needs, you know, any one of those things that Blockstream is now doing, for example, like the Adamant uh, uh, acquisition and like it, it, it I'm sure it's exciting to think of all the different ways in which you might facilitate financial services to this uh, clientele. Equally exciting is what's happening with mining, both in the production uh, capacity, as well as just this kind of seeming explosion of energy producers realizing that Bitcoin mining and, you know, basically being able to plug in a shipping container near their energy production site is a massive boon, you know, to the economics of the project and to their, you know, long-term economics and to the transfer of energy. And, you know, so it's, when I think about these things, I think, wow, these are gonna be massive industries in their own right. And, you know, I I guess the, the, again, the crux of my question was like, how do you kind of determine how to prioritize them? Because some of them are, are all so big, but on the flip side of that, I'd also love to to uh, just ask you kind of a quirky question. But like, why do a cheap hardware wallet? You know, there's 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 existing options in the market. I get that they're probably more expensive, and maybe that was some of the motivation. But you know, why why that piece of the puzzle? Uh,
1: yeah. So so how we ended up doing the hardware wallet is uh, for a, a, again like a straight line reason. So you'll you'll see why when we, when we explain how, how we arrived there, which is. Now, we have a pretty good relationship with the other hardware wallet manufacturers. The green software wallet has, uh, support for, you know, the, the main hardware wallet manufacturers like Ledger, Trezor and so forth, uh, using USB connections, even on Android devices, you can plug in a USB wallet, hardware wallet, and use it on the software wallet. So we know the, the vendors pretty well. And our only concern was to be able to innovate faster. So, we, uh, we wanted to be able to do, um, you know, have hardware wallet support for things like what Sideswap does, you know, doing a limit order approved by the hardware wallet. So adding advanced new transaction types and focusing the R&D around that on Bitcoin, like a lot of hardware wallet development resources are spent on the hundreds of coins that pay them to, to get integrated. So, you know, that's part of their business model, not, not for us to criticize. But the specific thing we needed was to be able to innovate faster in adding support for, you know, trustless OTC of Bitcoin versus USD stable coins, to be able to add support for more advanced contracts like trustless options and different things like that, right? And the challenge would be if we relied on the third parties, like their technical team will be enthusiastic, but it might take. An amount of time outside of our control to get that integrated and in the meantime you'd be losing a market window so we figured okay we we need to we're not really looking to compete with them like we don't want to necessarily take their market share but we want to be able to innovate and then uh you know so we looked for a way to to bring a wallet to market quickly so it's actually a you know customized version of an off the shelf piece of hardware which is the m5 stack based on ESP32, it, many of them are sold to like IOT and hardware tinkerers and developers. And so, and it's a, it's a kind of modular hardware uh, platform. So you can kind of snap together different things like a camera and a battery and a Fi and different things like that. So um, we targeted that platform um, because, you know, it was a fast way for us to do, we could contract a manufacturer to customize it, to, you know, add the peripherals we needed and, it's an, it's an open programming platform. And by doing that, we also, you know, so then we are like, well, you know, we should try to add some diversity to the uh, characteristics of a hardware wallet. Some people use multi-sig and you want like different supply chain, different technology, different library, just in case something has an unforeseen issue. So we're like, well, okay, while we've started on a track, like what can we do that's fast and different so you know we don't have a secure element because that would add cost and time to you know to make work, and tends to you know some some uh, secure elements are closed source, so that that, that fights the closed aspect. So uh, we we developed a protocol to kind of use server-assisted uh, lockout if you get a pin wrong too many times. So it, it's a different way to get a similar effect to the secure mm-hmm. element. And then for the price point, I think, you know, we, we probably could charge more, but it's probably more interesting for us to, you know, see lots of people buy it and be able to use liquid. So, you know, it's a way for them to adopt liquid, basically, you know, they get that it's Bitcoin and stable coins and things like that only. And um, it makes them liquid, liquid enabled, and liquid ready, and able right. to participate in these kind of trustless peer-to-peer market functions, which is our point. And of course, we know we we work with the other hardware wallet manufacturers, and you know there is cross-pollination of ideas. So maybe they will integrate some of these features uh, at some point as well, which would be great. Um, so that's why we did it, and why the price point. Um, and also, it's you know, it's uh, it's a fairly cheap device in terms of it's you know, the plastic is not like super ergonomically designed by a team. It's a kind of generic plastic casing, right? So, you know, some people have put quite a lot of uh, ergonomics and product thinking into their you know, their touch and their feel and the ergonomics of the casings and stuff like that. So we didn't have the time because we wanted to get to solve a problem quickly. Um, so that's where that came from. And in terms of how we end up, you know, how we manage the priorities, I mean, actually it's uh, you know, it, it's a fairly small team, like it's about 70 people. So we're adding people since the fundraising, but, and we do a lot of things. So it means that the individual teams are relatively lean because you know, there'll be a team working on a wallet, people working on a hardware wallet, people working on mining working on the financial products uh, people working on lightning. So to use an example, like the lightning team is three people. So, and I dare say the other lightning implementations are a multiple of that in size, right? So, you know, of course they've got, you know, HR and management layers where we just have a team of three people and they do their thing. And I think part of it is being able to recruit people who are very mission oriented and uh, self-motivated and, you know, those three guys can hold their own compared to, well, uh, Rusty, Christian, and Lisa can hold their own compared to, you know, bigger companies and mm-hmm. do very well. So I think, you know, if people are on a mission and you recruit people who are, you know, very technically sophisticated and relevant experience, they can do a lot with a small team.
0: Yeah. Uh, last couple for you, Adam. But the, um, what do you find? I know this is kind of like possibly you know, picking your favorite child, but what do you find most exciting about what you're up to at Blockstream? Like where, where does your attention naturally lead? Where do you most see the future kind of materialize and and want to create it?
1: Hmm. Well, I mean, I think, you know, many of the things we're doing fit into the puzzle to release, you know, I think the trustless market thing is very, very interesting. I think, If people try out Sideswap, that's pretty inspiring what that does with Liquid, that it's it's trustless and using Bitcoin related technology. But, you know, to get to the stage of something like that requires many of the building blocks. Um, So I think personally, I'd like to see, um, you know, more decentralization, more privacy tech in layer one, or, you know, potentially in layer twos or new layer twos that are providing more privacy. And so that, that's a, you know an active area of research. There's a lot of research applied research in SNOX. and usually Blockstream did a lot of the R and D and like applied crypto work on the Schnorr implementation and the MuSig, you know, the uh, this type of s- signature where there could be multiple signers behind it but it looks like one signature so that kind of thing so we we have a team of people working on that so we end up doing a lot of work on that so we have quite a lot of um applied crypto uh brain power in a way um so i think we're we're sort of well placed to do things in the privacy space as well
0: um this is potentially a uh, kind of superficial question but you know, on the on the recent fundraise, you know, I, I believe the valuation of Blockstream ex- exceeded a billion dollars, or it was two billion, or something like that. Um, you know, you got into this because you were interested in cryptography, what it represented. You get exposure to Bitcoin, you have the light bulb moment, you kind of see this is something worth dedicating yourself to, and it's manifested into you know being a quote unquote unicorn. You know, being at the helm of a company that's doing work that the market values you know to such a high degree. Does that affect you at all? Like, do you do you revel in that in any way, or do you just kind of bang on with the objective and, and keep pushing where you've been, you know, trying to push?
1: Yeah, keep pushing. So, so uh, really, in a way, it's you know the uh, I mean, I've always a very kind of free market capitalist outlook anyway, and so you know, revenue and Investment is fuel to do more of it, right? So, and you know, some of the things we're doing are capital incentive, um, You know, building a an ASIC, building a miner, building out more power infrastructure, building containers, and software development itself. You know, they all use a lot of money and are um, you know having elapsed time to to get a robust finished effect. So yeah, we just we just look at it as you know fuel to do more of it, and it's a, it's a good time to be doing a lot of these things too. So we you know we're we're well placed to uh, make some you know, grow our revenue rapidly with some of these lines of business as well, which is which is great because you know we can do more of that and put more finish and bring new. I mean, the challenge with Bitcoin is there's a lot of like low level technical potential. But there's often a gap in delivering it to users in a a usable form factor like in a hardware wallet or a software wallet or something like that right so bitcoin has script opcodes that can do some pretty interesting things but many of them have never been given to users in a way that they can use them right you know like maybe you know a really power user or a bitcoin core developer can do it and like in a raw transaction but there are very few people that know how to do that. So I think there's a lot of scope to simplify and make accessible, uh, even things buildable with the current Bitcoin stack and, and the yeah. same with Liquid.
0: Yeah. Well, man, I think it's uh, incredibly exciting what you guys are doing at Blockstream. Uh, you know, I, I, every time I see a press release or see, you know, something new you guys are doing, I just, I'm kind of like, how the hell? are these people uh, pulling this stuff off. Uh, And I definitely appreciate it and I'm grateful for the work uh, and for the time today, man. So uh, any closing remarks or anywhere you want to direct people if they want to check Blockstream or you out a little bit more?
1: Uh, Yeah, so I'm on Twitter at Adam3US. um, Blockstream, a lot of Blockstream products are on blockstream.com. And uh, there's a Liquid network has its own site, which is liquid.net. Has a lot of different exchange and market makers and sort of bitcoin technology company participants um so yeah i mean I, it's like thanks for the conversation and i think that you know it's one of the great things about bitcoin is that you can have an immense amount of fun building the future of bitcoin as well so we're having fun over here doing a doing our thing
0: yeah so, well so. i think that as is so often reflected in people that come into the space and want to get jobs in bitcoin because it becomes this mind virus that you can't really think about anything else and there's nothing else you want to work on and you just try to find a way to weasel weasel your way into it somehow so uh you know i suspect uh, the next time we chat blockstream will have a lot more of those people uh, under its fold and i'm sure you guys will be doing a lot of cool stuff so thanks again adam and uh, i look forward to talking again in the future thank you all right all right brother take care